Content warning. The following episode of Noctivigant will contain heavy discussions of child sexual abuse, professional abuse by therapists, spousal abuse, and quite possibly many other triggering things. If you are sensitive to any of those topics, you may want to skip this one. Doug Nagel had the feeling he had stepped into a nightmare. He kept looking around, touching the bedspread, pushing his foot into the carpet, twisting his wedding ring. He tried blinking his eyes, sighing, coughing, holding his breath, anything to make this dream world disappear and bring the real world back. But nothing worked. This was the real world. He was in his bedroom. It was 9 p.m. And his wife, Debbie, had just accused him of sexually abusing two of their four daughters nearly a decade earlier. Debbie's voice was unnaturally calm and distant as she detailed the accusations. 23-year-old Kristen, their oldest daughter, had recently recovered memories of being sexually abused by her father. Kristen also told her sister, 15-year-old Jennifer, that she thought she had seen her father molesting her. When Kristen called Jennifer's counselor and discussed her fears with her, the counselor immediately called Debbie and together they made the decision to contact CPS. Child Protective Services, Doug asked. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. Debbie nodded her head. We've been advised by Jennifer's counselor and caseworkers at CPS that you should move out of the house temporarily. But I never abused my children, Doug protested. They warned me you might be in denial. This can't be happening. Denial means you're dangerous. Please, Debbie, you have to tell me. What did I do? You are deeply in denial. My ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name's Jay, and I am joined this week by the shell-shocked duo Nick and Rory. That is accurate. Yeah. Yeah, it is. (laughs) On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature and whatever the fuck this book was. So settle in. Buckle up and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. God damn, I want a shower. And we're back. Yes. We're in the basement and depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's okay. Most of the stories in this uh, book sound like they should take place in a basement. Yeah. Or just do take place in a basement. <laughs> yeah. Hello, everyone. Welcome to what I am low-key calling the after-school special of Noctivigant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going to be talking about um, some pretty grisly stuff today. Yep. Uh, we're talking about stuff so grisly, I'm going to have to define some acronyms for you guys. Um, uh, from now on in the episode, if you hear me referencing SRA, that stands for Satanic Ritual Abuse. If you hear me referencing CSA, that is going to be referencing Child Sexual Abuse. I have to say those terms so frequently, I resorted to using their acronyms. So, I mean, fair. So that's what's 
So that's 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 what we're that's what we're finding on the road tonight. All right. Yep. So, Jay, what book are we actually reading? We are reading The Myth of the Repressed Memory, False Memories and Allegations of Sexual Abuse by Dr. Elizabeth Loutis and Catherine Ketchum. Yeah. And uh, for our listeners at home uh, who may be wondering why we're doing this book, uh, it, it really comes down to the fact that over the course of covering the books on this show, obviously, we've talked about repressed memories, both in terms of the alien abduction experience, but also on our satanic panic episode. We talked about it in terms of the uncovered memories of satanic ritual abuse. Right. And and, they, and both sides have presented very different aspects of this same topic. Right. Yeah. So we felt it was, uh, I don't know, important, moral and a moral imperative that we yeah. try to also provide uh, the other side of this conversation, the people who don't believe there is anything to repress memories. They, it, they don't even exist. Um, and I mean, there's something to that. I think we'll get into it in the discussion questions. Uh, but also we've, you know, we've heard from many people that the belief that uh, <laughs> the belief that it is impossible for a therapist to put a memory into someone else's head. Right. And uh, I don't know, we felt it, would, it was important to try to uh, kind of create more of a dialogue about that topic yeah. rather than providing only one side of it. Yeah, exactly. Because ultimately, we're not experts in any of this. And we're, you know, so if somebody comes on the show and they say, oh, you know, you can never implant a false memory in somebody, even though we know, especially from reading the Satanic Panic uh, book that we read, that it is possible, at least according to to that, right? So I think it means that we have to dive a little bit deeper into this topic. And I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, that means that we had to read uh, this book. I, I I also felt obligated because on the Satanic Panic episode, I spent several minutes trashing the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, and yeah. I still don't fucking like those people, but again, professional courtesy, doing my research, if it's like I needed to understand at least where they were coming from and why people put their faith in them. Yeah, and I mean, so I will say this. On the whole, it was a very well-constructed book. It's is uh, very, 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 very well-written. Yeah, the yes. authors did a great job of laying out their argument in a very uh, effective, emotionally devastating manner. Yeah. Uh, every single chapter of this book was a slog, but not because of the density of the material, but because of the emotional impact it had. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because this is hard stuff to read about, and this is going to be hard stuff to hear. Yeah, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Um, I, I couldn't finish the book. Uh, I, I made it about three quarters of the way in and I just couldn't do it anymore. And I finished by reading Nick's notes. And you know what? That's fair. I actually don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. I just couldn't emotionally handle it anymore. Yeah, no, I, I will say I, this. The, the week I powered through this book was probably the biggest depressive funk I've had in years. I, I think the only reason I had a marginally easier time of this is just because, you know, I work in social services. I've yeah. been kind of, I've been jaded since my first year at grad school. Like, right. There was just a, there was a lot of really triggering stuff. And, in this and that's so. that's that's completely fair and like when i say i'm jaded this book was still hard for me and yeah. in the course of writing this summary i've read this book and nick's notes probably twice each yeah. and it was it, it 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 was it was hard i had a lot of professional for fury saved yeah. up by the end of it and honestly for you this is probably this book was probably really great for you professionally yes um yeah for me it was um yeah it just 
it, yeah, it, I couldn't, I couldn't handle a lot of it. No, none of this information improved you? No. Yeah, I, I'll say this. None of this information approved, improved me emotionally. I am glad to have some of it. Um, and I, I'm sure we're going to get into this later. And well, this is, I feel so inappropriate talking about this in relation to this topic. Weirdly enough, this also did in its own way further my understanding of the phenomenon uh, due to the bits in here about uh, alien abductees and their repressed memories. And I mean, well, like, like I will For say sure. that, but I mean, that obviously is not the core point of the book. No, no, no not even a little bit. It, yeah. Um, so should we? Uh, let's get started. Let's get started. Let's begin right. this long, bleak march. Okay. The myth of the repressed memory begins with the first of many distressing anecdotes. In fact, all of chapter one is a single distressing anecdote. Shirley Ann Souza began her life as a happy, athletic, motivated child. Described by some as a parent's dream, she was captain of her volleyball and softball teams and still made the National Honor Society. Then, while in college studying for her pharmacy degree, Shirley was sexually assaulted twice by two different assailants, less than a year apart. Trying to piece her life back together was easier said than done. Filled with grief and rage, Shirley began having nightmares. Vivid, humiliating nightmares in which her mother, father, and brother all sexually abused and tortured her. She entered therapy in a bid to control her feelings, but found little relief there. And after two years of fighting trauma, Shirley came to a horrifying conclusion. Her nightmares about her family were real. She called her sister and her sister-in-law, telling them emphatically that her parents had subjected her to ritual abuse and that she had only just now recovered the memories. Her sisters gathered up their children and, already infected with the rapidly spreading fear, brought them in to be psychologically evaluated. The first therapist saw no evidence of abuse or trauma in the children, but their mothers wouldn't hear it and moved on to specialists in CSA. Soon, the children seemed to recover memories as well. While most of these CSA memories were run-of-the-mill, won't-sleep-for-a-week horrors, others had a distinctly inventive flair to them. One of Shirley's nieces claimed that she was abused by a special machine as big as a room that had hands to hurt her with and also made references to living in a cage and being forced to drink strange potions. No physical evidence was ever found, but the court took these memories very seriously. Shirley's parents were indicted on these stories alone and, due to refusing to plead guilty to these charges, are now facing 9 to 15 years in prison. Dr. Loftus's voice cuts in at the end of this chapter with a harsh reminder all because of memories that did not exist until after a grown woman had a bad dream. As I said earlier, this will be far, far from our last distressing anecdote. Chapter 2, however, opens with some science instead. Dr. Lauftus is considered an expert and an authority on human memory, more specifically on how it is retrieved and how it becomes distorted. She has spent a quarter of a century conducting research, delivering talks, writing articles and books, and, most significant to this episode, testifying in court on the unreliability of human recollection. Many people mistakenly believe that our memories are stored somewhere in our brains. 
that there is a file cabinet or a locked trunk or a film reel that saves copies of all of our experiences. But according to Lauftus's peer-reviewed and retestable data, that's not actually the case. Memories are more ephemeral by her assessment. They drift about in our brains, stored in many different spots, and needing to be completely rebuilt from pieces each time we bring them up. People are often resistant to this idea, distressed that their memories, their records of their lives and their selves, are fluid like this. It challenges their concepts of real and unreal. But Lauftus has hard data and personal experience on her side. Quote, in my experiments conducted with thousands of subjects over two decades, I've molded people's memories, prompting them to recall non-existent broken glass and tape recorders, to think of a clean-shaven man as having a mustache, of straight hair as curly, of stop signs as yield signs, of hammers as screwdrivers. I've been able to implant false memories in people's minds, making them believe in characters who never existed and events that never happened. But her work has some baggage attached to it. The myth of the repressed memory was written in the late 1980s, amidst the embers of the dying satanic panic. Even as belief in violent cults of sorcerers waned, the country's hysteria over CSA remained high. Hell, it's kind of never gone down. And as one of the voices casting doubt on these ghoulish stories, Lauftus found herself with a target on her back. Her office was flooded with hate mail, accusing her of pedophilia and of conspiring with child traffickers. Fellow professionals accused her of ignoring facts. Feminists demanded to know when she'd abandoned the mission in favor of defending rapists. But among those angry voices were other ones. The voices of parents whose adult children emerged from therapist's office, heads full of demons and howling for blood. They'd gone out into the world seeking professional help and instead found hazy, distressing memories of unspeakable abuse. These parents write to Lauftus, begging for help, or at least for the tools to understand. Something has stolen my child's mind away. I would die before I hurt my son like that. I have searched and searched my own memories. I did not do this. Why does my daughter believe I did? Lauftus tries to help, but she describes the situation as unwinnable and pins part of the blame on the landscape of 1980s applied psychology. In Lauftus's era, childhood was often viewed as the source of all neuroses, all traumas, all pains. If you are suffering in adulthood, the answers lie in your formative years. And if you find no satisfactory answers, then you simply haven't dug deep enough, and you should rip up shovel after shovel of dirt until something is uncovered. This, Lauftus says, is where the concept of repression becomes so appealing. Repression, in Lauftus's words, is an unproven psychological concept, one which presumes the human mind has the power to hide, but not delete, highly traumatic memories in order to keep the individual in question from becoming overwhelmed. These memories lurk in our unconscious, giving us symptoms of psychological distress but no answer until the individual is ready to cope and remember. After which, the memories can be fully recovered, a process that repression believers insist is essential to healing. We now enter Chapter 3, where we meet Lynn Price Gondolf, who found nothing buried in her past but had her present destroyed by the fruitless search. When I say nothing was buried in Lynn's past, I don't mean her childhood was happy. I simply mean that, contrary to how repression is meant to work, the sexual abuse she endured at the hands of her uncle was never forgotten. She carried around those painful memories for decades, developing an eating disorder and eventually seeking out a new therapist to assist her in managing her trauma. 
Only problem was that this new therapist was about eight different sadistic quacks sewn together into some kind of mega shit duck, and he did miles more harm than good. Now tell us how you really feel. I just fucking did. (laughs) (laughs) Also, when I find this guy, I'm going to tell him how I feel with the vindicence of a fucking shovel. Goddamn idiot. Jay is a little salty. (laughs) After pressuring Lynn into divulging more and more specific details of her uncle sexually assaulting her, this disgusting moron then moved on to Lynn's parents, insisting that her uncle's abuse was not enough to traumatize her this deeply. He implied that her mother and father must have known, did nothing to interfere, and therefore obviously sexually abused her as well. Despite Lynn's alarmed denials, he treated these assertions as facts from then on. In a technique that is distressingly common among recovered memory therapists, he began encouraging Lynn to imagine and picture her parents molesting her. And lo and behold, Lynn began remembering instances of abuse at her parents' hands. Re-traumatized and feeling betrayed, Lynn latched on tighter to her therapist, who put her into a therapy group filled with other abused women. The entire group was encouraged to cut all ties with their families and outside friends, told repeatedly that they were all too fragile to survive without each other and the therapist's guidance, and the therapy itself was intense. In addition to the visualization techniques used on Lynn, the women were asked to perform trance writing and were subjected to age regression via hypnosis. Even when no memories came or the women questioned the reality of them, the therapist didn't relent. All survivors are in denial, he assured them, and took their doubts as proof. Letters from their family were denounced as manipulation. Isolation was the recommended course of treatment. Lynn, like all of the women in the group, deteriorated rapidly. After multiple suicide attempts, losing her job and her car, being put on a cocktail of drugs, and then cycled through not one, not five, but nine different diagnostic labels, Lynn was placed into inpatient psychiatric care for over three months. When Lynn's insurance stopped paying out, her therapist turned on her. He berated her, demanding to know how she intended to pay for his services. When she had no answer, he obtained a court order to have her involuntarily institutionalized. Lynn spent some time in a hellish, overcrowded, and neglectful diagnostic center. Filthy, abused patients wandered about while Lynn sobbed and fought off her implanted flashbacks, dreading the indefinite institution stay that loomed ahead. At the 11th hour, an actual psychiatrist looked over Lynn's case file, saw through the 17 layers of bullshit piled on by Confuso the Clown, (laughs) probably had an existential crisis, and sent the poor woman home. Under the care of a better therapist and a reputable rehab program, detoxed from her overmedication and free of the mental abuse she'd been living under, Lynn started to see clearly again. The memories of her parents' abuse became cartoonish and obviously unreal. In time, they simply faded, and Lynn had the horrible realization that she'd been misled. After two years of wandering in a funhouse mirror maze, Lynn stumbled home and back into her family's forgiving embrace. Lauftus 
and Ketchum close the chapter by taking some guesses at what their readers are thinking. What the hell is wrong with Lynn Price Gondolf? Is she exceptionally stupid? Weak and prone to being easily manipulated? Is she a compulsive liar? Or perhaps, Loftus adds, we're siding with the therapist and think that Lynn chose denial over painful truths. But Loftus and Ketchum present a different, equally sobering thought. That the problem was not Lynn. The problem was the therapy itself. In Loftus' words, in its zeal to ameliorate our suffering, has therapy reduced all our problems to symptoms, equating suffering with abuse, and holding forth the false hope of redemption through the resurrection of lost innocence? To put it more simply, therapists have become so obsessed with finding the one secret root of all mental disease that they had chosen twisted fairy tales over the grim notion that, perhaps, suffering was simply part of life and is therefore often idiopathic. Chapter 4 contains the stories of five women whose experiences strongly resemble Lynn's. They went to therapists for unrelated issues and were told point-blank that they had been sexually abused. All five protested, stating they had no memories of this, but their therapists were insistent, aggressive, or flat-out manipulative. Like Lynn, they were told that their lack of memories meant nothing, that most survivors repressed memories of their abuse, that if they worked harder, they could remember and be made whole again. They ended up in group therapy where they were exposed to other fragile women experiencing recovered traumatic memories. Also like Lynn, they were over-medicated, isolated from their families and friends, lost their jobs or homes, and experienced sharp declines as they became totally dependent on their therapists. Besides dumping gasoline on the flames of my professional outrage, this chapter gives us a crash course on two books we'll be hearing a lot about from now on. The Courage to Heal by Ellen Bass and Laura Davis and Secret Survivors by E. Sue Bloom. E. Sue Bloom. <laughs> Used by Lynn's therapist as well, these books make the same claims that these women were manipulated with. That survivors of child abuse usually block out the memories and that anyone could be caring about deeply traumatic agonies and just not know it. The Courage to Heal, in particular, asserted that feeling as though you were abused is all the evidence you should need. How does one feel abused? Both books are actually quite vague on that. Courage describes signs of SRA trauma that can actually be chalked up to, I live in America and am therefore constantly suffering at least a little. Secret Survivors has a checklist of symptoms on the inside of the front cover. It was this checklist that one therapist used to forcibly diagnose one of the earlier women with CSA trauma. And what were these ironclad, indisputable symptoms? Being afraid of the dark. Feeling the need to control your emotions. Having body image issues. And being nervous as an adult. There were a few others, but they do not get more specific. And quite frankly, everybody I know has at least half of them. We actually gave Nick this test and the results were distressing. Both books are slash were extremely popular among repressed memory advocates and, as I said, will be brought up frequently for the rest of the episode. Even more popular than the books was the single heavily loaded word, denial. Any question about the validity of the memories was chalked up to denial, whether it came from the accused family members or from the alleged victims themselves. Denial was taken as evidence. The lady doth protest too much. 
And their therapist told them all the same two contradictory statements, that they were too deep in denial to trust their own minds, but the memories they uncovered, or more likely created, were gospel truth. And that brings us to our first discussion question. All right. I don't know about you two, but I tend to get a little obsessed with the truth. It's also a common refrain among the authors that we read and study on this show, the desperate search for answers. That search seems to sit at the heart of the repression debate, so I ask you, (laughs) I ask your humble, earthly opinions, is all truth inherently worth knowing, or should some things stay where they've been put? Woof. Yeah, I'm... All right, so... um. Regarding the quest for truth, I mean, that's always the question, especially when you're not to not to bring everything back to the paranormal. But when we're ta- let, for example, let's say when we're talking about the UFO mystery, right? Well, what if the truth is they are here to harvest us for meat, that we are a factory farm? Is that something that we would be improved by knowing? And I, I guess that I know it's kind of like a cartoonish uh, inter- reinterpretation of this event, but. The fact of the matter is, I still have always fallen on the side of it is better to know. Um, But that said, it's better to know if what you're getting is actually truth. Um, And that doesn't seem to be the case of what was happening here. These women uh, did not come into the therapist's office saying, hey, I believe I was abused or I have vague memories of being abused or uh, I mean, outside of the first one, I believe, uh, Gandalf, the one you mentioned, she had clear memories of being abused, but then was made significantly worse. They took yeah. the kernel of truth and they just built upon it and built upon it until it became something completely different. They they told her that the abuse she remembered wasn't enough to justify the mental hell she was going through as an adult. Yeah, that, which is so insane. Well, and again, we, you brought up the symptom list. So uh, I pulled... Uh, the one by an author named Renee Fredrickson. Uh, now, her list had 75 symptoms, but only 11 were printed in this book. And so I ran myself through, or we ran me through it, and I I hit eight out of the 11 criteria. And it's important to note that in the book, multiple authors uh, on the topic of repressed memory said that if you meet any, even one of these, you should entertain the possibility that you were abused as a kid. Sit down and think about it and imagine what it might have been like to be abused as a kid. And like, I'm not even a therapist. I'm not even a psychologist. I'm not trained in psychology. I, I get some of it secondhand from my wife, but that's not the point. The, the fact is that even to me, that sounds like bullshit. Yeah. And when you look at the actual list, it's insane. So anyone at home, I mean, play along if you want. Uh, here are the 11 symptoms we have in this book. I have had a period of sexual promiscuity in my life. I often have nightmares. I have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep. Basements terrify me. I do some things to excess and I don't know when to quit. I identify with abuse victims in media and often stories of abuse make me want to cry. I startle easily. I space out or daydream. I feel different from other people. I have trouble feeling motivated or feel that I need to be perfect. And... I use work or achievements to compensate for inadequate feelings in other parts of my life. So I I challenge, is that, that's just 11 of the 75. Is there anyone on earth who doesn't meet one of those? No. I I don't think so. 
At no, least I've, I've never met one. Every Everybody daydreams. Well, and the fact of the matter is, if this is true, I was passed around like the village bicycle when I was a kid, and right. I know I wasn't. No, exactly. I came from I'm the most loving, supportive family. I, I was uh, probably given too much freedoms. I probably was treated a little too well. Huh. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that if you cast a net that wide, uh, you, you basically, what you do is you simplify all of human existence and all of human complexity to were you raped as a child. Yeah. And that it's so, it's, it's not even just wrong. It's so mind bogglingly wrong that I had kept having to put the book down. Yeah. It, it's, this is the longest I've ever seen you take to finish a book. And we have read significantly denser and more complicated books. Because it upset me. It, it upset me, not just because obviously we're reading very upsetting uh, stories of abuse, both fictional and real, but also it's upsetting just because it, it's, I mean, yes, yeah, some of the therapists, for example, um, I believe Gandalf's the one, was she the one who got put into an institution? Yeah. Yeah. Gandalf's, I mean, he just seemed like a manipulative monster. Uh, but so many of the others weren't. They just seemed like they were operating with uh, what they had been told was the case about human nature and human the human mind. And they were doing it with this idea that they're going to protect their patients, and they seem to be very earnest about it. But because their foundational assumption was not correct, they sowed destruction everywhere they went. And I, I think that, I mean, I think really when it comes to the topic of truth, that is the biggest thing I took from this book. And something we've talked about on this show is that even if everything that you believe follows a logical path, if your base assumptions are wrong, it will not lead you to the truth. Um, and the base assumption here was that A, well, there was a ton of them, but A, that uh, memories like that can be repressed when there's not a lot of evidence that can, that's the case. It's never been proven. Um, and B, that all of these things are direct symptoms of only one type of trauma you've had. Now, now to put that in perspective, I mean, I've had some traumas in my life. I saw my own leg vivisected open at a car accident. I've, I, I very nearly experienced death, um, not to mention the various pains and humiliations that happened when you're in the hospital. Anyone who spent some time in the ICU will know what I'm talking about. But and all of that has definitely messed with my mental state. It's definitely led to me probably checking yes on some of these symptoms. But it, it wasn't sexual abuse. Right. And that doesn't the list doesn't specify that this should be from childhood or in regards to a sexual nature, just as did you, do you experience any of these things? Yeah. And trauma is caused from a plethora yeah. of different, of different environmental, environmental and non-environmental factors. Well, and God, the one that pisses me off most on this list is I identify with abuse victims in the media and often stories about abuse make me want to cry. So, so if you have an ounce of empathy, yeah, Human empathy is sign you were raped. Great job. We've solved the human condition. Yeah. It's just so mind-bogglingly infuriating. It makes me want to burn something down, but I'm not sure what. Yeah. No, we and you know, we talked about the need for the human need to categorize and um like label things in the 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 uh, Mike Ricksecker uh episode. Mm -hmm. And this feels the same way to me. Because ultimately, they they made this list of things because these are you know these are signs that some many or all abuse victims had, and so they're like, yes, we're going to make this list of things that may that if you have even one of these, you probably were sexually abused. Um, but there are probably people out there that well, one would would lie on on these tests, and two. 
Um, they, like you said, Nick, they would have experienced many, if not all of these, and have never been sexually abused. And now you're planting, you're literally forming the seed for these fake memories or this this fake idea of sexual abuse to start before you've even begun to dig in and do any kind of work. You're Because you're trying to make something that is not uh, black and white, you're trying to make it black and white. You're trying to say it is this or it's not this when it's not that easy. It's never going to be that easy. What in the what in human history has ever been that easy? Right. And I think one thing regarding the topic of truth, back to the original question, um, I think what what this shows to me even more strongly, it's something we've talked about in other episodes, is that uh, the quest for truth is in many ways more important than the truth itself in that once you have come to a conclusion like these therapists did, right? You become set in it. That is the gospel truth. And so it reframes your entire reality around that. And you stop questioning if there is validity in that approach. Yeah. It becomes your reality. And so it is so important, not just in terms of paranormal stuff where we often talk about it, but in terms of life, hold your beliefs lightly. Yeah. Be willing to adapt and change and always be questioning it. Because that's the only way we grow is by coming to understand the limitations of our worldviews and challenging them and pushing mm-hmm. them and seeing how they evolve. And when you're not doing that, you're just you're just a monkey with a hand grenade. You're you're gonna cause yeah. a lot of problems. Yeah. And I I like I guess in terms of the actual the the baseline of this question, um, like is truth inherently worth knowing? Is all truth inherently worth knowing? Like, there's a part of me that says, of course it is, right? Of course, truth is inherently worth knowing. That ultimately, isn't that what we're doing on this show, is seeking what some would define as the ultimate truth, both what happened, what what is happening with consciousness, what is happening after we die, what's going on with all of these potentially superna- supernatural and paranormal things, Ultimately, is that not the purpose of the show is to seek after these truths? I I'm, would say I, I would say yes. I mean, I would argue the point of human existence is to do that. E- exactly. So yeah, I think the truth inher- is inherently worth knowing. But I think what we have to I think the part that we have to kind of temper is at what cost. You know, like yeah, we should we should always be striving for the truth, but at what cost? Like, is it going? To, is continuing down this path for the answer going to harm myself and other people? Because if so, there's probably a different path. There's probably a better one. This is just the one that's available to you now. And that doesn't mean, just because it's available to you now, doesn't mean that it's the right way to go. Well, it's, it's a lot like, you know, we talk about, for example, medical ethics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth is obviously worth knowing there. We're getting wonderful cures, better ways to elongate our lives, he- heal diseases. But we decided a long time ago as a society that um, that truth was not worth vivisecting people alive to right. learn how the body works. Right. We no, had to exactly. wait till some psychos in a war did that, and then we stole all their data. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, that's where a lot of medical science comes from. Yeah. Um, but the fact of the matter is we, we have long put not limits on what truth is or the, the seeking of truth. We've just said, yes, do it, but ca- don't do harm while you're doing it. Right, because ulti- like, like ultimately, uh, I feel like this isn't hard, but here we are. Um, right. Don't, like, give a sh- or do give a shit about other people. Like, yeah. please. Yeah, pl- 
<laughs> that that's the part that boggles my mind so much. Yeah. Well, and anytime that you're seeing uh like what's happening in these repression cases where you're you're pigeonholing someone else into the villain role and you're not allowing them any voice of their own, uh you're probably in the wrong. Yeah. Like these the especially this whole uh feedback cycle these poor people got into where well, you abused your kids. Well, no, I didn't. I don't remember that. Well, you're in denial. Well, how can I prove that I'm not in denial? You can't. You're in denial. Yeah, no, exactly. That's that that kind of stuff is what really starts uh what one of the things that was really starting to get to me was like so well that and like the leading questions that so many of the therapists would do where they're like, well, when they would do the exact same thing to the victim, they would say, well, you're in denial. You just, you don't remember yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't remember yet. This, you know, it'll come. And then they'll put them in scenarios like group therapy around all of these other victims who are telling their stories. Yeah. And what is, what is it when, like, when you put somebody, a vulnerable somebody, a emotional somebody in a room full of people who are letting their deepest emotions out it's you're gonna relate to that person like i i would relate to everybody in in that that kind of session i would find my brain would find a way for me to to empathize with them and for those people who are already feeling this way they're gonna start forming these thoughts of how this may or may not have happened well especially if you look at the fact that almost all the circle the uh support groups that we read about in this book some of their tenants were cut off all contact with your family. Right, cult you know, shit. These are yes. the people that the only people in this room, the only people you can trust are the people in this room. Is like that. That is that, that is cult one hundred and one. Yeah, they, they actually recommend not treating cult survivors with group therapy because oh, yeah. of that exact phenomenon. I did a whole paper on this back in school that. It's just it's just not considered viable with people trying to survive a cult mindset because they do this. Yeah. Well, you you go from you go from cult the cult mentality to a cult mentality. Yeah, well, yep. especially when you're looking at not just the ones of uh, the people who recovered memories of child abuse, but specifically satanic ritual abuse. Yeah, they may have never been in a cult, but they might have the mindset of someone who was in a cult because they've convinced themselves they were in a cult. Right. Yeah. Um. And yeah, about the uh, that thing you were describing, baby, about being in a being a vulnerable pr- person in a room with other vulnerable people discussing their trauma. Lauftus, uh, I I cut I cut it, but Lauftus has like a whole section in towards the back, like third of the book, where she's talking about like I think this is what's creating a lot of these memories is these group therapy sessions. She referred to it as chaining the memories. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I mean, so I guess my 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 answer is yes. The truth is worth looking at, but don't ever assume you have it. Yeah, like no, we, I... we should always be going for it. But we sh- we should never assume that we're done. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree with that. And also, like, and the, my my addition to that is seek the truth so long as it doesn't harm other people. Because if that path does, find a different one. AKA, it all boils down to don't be an asshole. Yeah, you know what's funny is I've been thinking about the rules for our Discord server while like while this is going on. And the first rule I wrote down is don't be a dick. And ultimately. <laughs> Uh, I think this applies here too. Yeah, yeah. Um, as for my personal answer, um, I, I, to put it simply, I don't think all truths are inherently worth knowing. I'm just thinking of someone I know tangentially who is uh, fairly certain that their that their German grandfather may have done some unspeakable things, 
back in the 1930s and 40s while they were in Germany and his stances. I'm not going to go fucking digging for that. How does that help me or anyone? Yeah. And it's like, that's a fair. That's absolutely fair. Yeah. There are just. Sometimes you don't want to know. You don't want to know what you don't know. And I get that too. And also, you know, like if, if a client, if I'm doing a trauma history with a client and there's a section of their life or an event where they're like, listen, let's just not even go there. They're like, I don't want help with that. It's not, I, I, you know what, you know what I'm supposed to do in my professional ethics? I'm supposed to back the fuck off. If they say it's not my business, it stops being my business and it never will be again. Yeah. All right. All right. Are we ready for the next section? It's got to be done. All right. Let's do this. Let's go. Chapter 5, entitled God's Beard and the Devil's Horns, dives into the complex moral and social issues that continue to impact the repression question. Referring to the debate as increasingly bitter, Lauftus lies out the opposing sides. On one hand, the true believers, the ones who take the mechanism of repression as indisputable fact and take the authenticity of recovered memories at face value. Then there are the skeptics. This is Lauftus's camp, where repression is still viewed as purely hypothetical and recovered memories are understood to be largely unprovable. Neither side is above slinging mud or twisting the narrative, Lauftus admits. True believers think they have the moral high ground. They're crusaders, defenders of the weak and innocent, dragging horrific crimes into the light when no one else has the nerve. Meaning, of course, that skeptics are all in cahoots with the Satanic High Council and spend their Saturday nights eating murdered babies. The skeptics seem to have slightly cleaner hands, but they pay no respect to their colleagues across the aisle, painting them as unethical soothsayers and moronic quacks out for attention and an easy paycheck while playing merry hell with their clients' lives. They are dangerous, the skeptics insist. They must be stopped. Lauftus expresses discomfort with these extremes. While an ardent skeptic, she is deeply sympathetic to the believers and to those carrying around these recovered memories. She understands what many of the true believers are truly fearful of, that too much dismissal of these stories will send us backwards, return us to a dark, dark age where victims of sexual abuse and assault were silenced, labeled liars and lunatics, all in the name of protecting their families or the public's peace of mind. She also has some doubts that all of these memories, factually true or not, were merely implanted by droves of careless therapists. But she extends that same sympathetic ear, that same benefit of the doubt, to the falsely accused who reach out to her in desperation. Their pain is dismissed, actively and constantly chalked up as denial's evil twin or merely a tactic to lure their victims back in. Court cases aren't the only threats looming for them. Shattered families, broken marriages, lost jobs, assault on their properties or persons, and good old-fashioned trauma can all come on the heels of an accusation. Said accusations can cost you more than that. They can cost you your life. Such was the tragedy of Carr and Judy Scotland. They were accused of molesting three children at a daycare center, but the charges were dropped due to the judge looking at the evidence with their eyes. But apparently somebody didn't get the memo. Carr was murdered outside his home. He died screaming, I didn't do it. 
On that somber note, we step into chapter six. Here, Loftus and Ketchum borrow a couple of terms from novelist Tim O'Brien. Story truth and happening truth. Happening truth is the historical fact, the indisputable, concrete, provable events of the past. Story truth is more complicated. It is an embellishment in order to make a point, a colorization in order to highlight the key details, a modified version that exists for the benefit of storyteller and listener alike. Both are valid, Loftus urges us to remember, and story truth is an invaluable tool in our quest to make peace with the past. Story truth is not a lie. It is merely a narrative driven by emotions over cold facts. The problems emerge when story truth is taken to court as legal evidence. Eileen Franklin, who never quite recovered from the violent murder of her childhood best friend. They were less than nine years old when Susan Nason went missing, and two months later, she was found sloppily buried in the woods with her tiny skull crushed. And 20 years later, Eileen went to the police with shocking news. She had recovered a series of repressed memories that revealed her father, George Franklin, as Susan's killer. What unfolds over the next eight pages is an absolute clown fire of an investigation. Susan gave a highly detailed statement to the police, describing how her father took the two girls alone into the woods, sexually assaulted Susan, and then crushed her head under a rock before threatening to kill Eileen if she ever told anyone. Verifiable facts were sprinkled into Eileen's statement, such as description of Susan's ring, and that made the detectives more certain of her authenticity. But was there any evidence beyond that? Well, no. And Loftus herself can attest to this. After all, she was called in to assist in George Franklin's defense. George Franklin, bear in mind, was no peach. Multiple witnesses have independently stated that he was abusive, violent, and cruel. Loftus does not dispute this. What she does dispute is the murder charge, which she finds shaky at best. Eileen's description of the murder contained no details that could not be found in newspaper articles of the event, therefore public knowledge. She even repeated mistakes that the reporters had made. She also kept changing her story, inserting or deleting tidbits with each retelling. She can't even stick to one version of how she recovered the memory in the first place. In one version, it came on spontaneously while looking into her daughter's eyes. In another, it was recovered while under hypnosis. When Eileen found out that the memory would be inadmissible in court if it was recovered under a trance, she asked her brother to withhold said information from the court. Unsuccessfully. But it hardly matters. This was one of only five versions that she told. Here, Loftus briefly pauses the trial narrative to ask a question we're familiar with here at Nottivigant. How does one tell the difference between a factual recovered memory and made-up wacky nonsense? And what prompts a memory to come to the surface anyway? And there's a good reason for that confusion. Nobody seems to know the answer to either of those questions. Secret Survivors has this to say on repression. The incest survivor develops a repertoire of behaviors designed to preserve the secret. These behaviors are not calculated or even conscious. Incest becomes the secret she keeps even from herself. Both it and courage to heal seem to assert that any psychological pain that has no obvious source could be chalked up to repressed memories, which are almost always assumed to be CSA or SRA related. 
No other proof is needed, according to these books. If you are suffering, you can call yourself a survivor and have your magical why answered. These are not the words of psychologists. These are the words of someone writing a newspaper horoscope for the emotionally maimed. Therapists insist that these story truth memories are valid, are just as important as happening truth, that it's about healing on an emotional level. Lauftus and I do not disagree, but the distinction between happening truth and story truth, I must reiterate, does matter when the story truth puts somebody on trial for murder. Speaking of the trial, the prosecution had brought in their own expert, Dr. Lenore Turr, a controversial psychiatrist who is considered an expert on childhood trauma but is also an outspoken champion of the repressed memory theory. She had this to say about Eileen's story. Intense trauma creates a more vivid memory, turning it into an unchanging snapshot inside the witnesses' brains. Lauftus disagreed. Her research showed that trauma actually degrades memory. And besides, Lauftus asked, if that's true, then how the hell is Eileen and everyone else burying the worst traumas ever for decades at a time? And Dr. Tear had an answer for that. You see, she explained, there are two types of trauma, and they cause memory to act differently. Type 1 is a singular horrific event. That creates the snapshot that is frozen forever and can totally be taken as evidence in a court case. Type 2 is many interconnected events that take place over a long period of time, and that's what causes repression. To quote Lauftus's summary, Ter theorizes children subjected to repeated abuses would learn to anticipate the abuse and defend themselves by disassociating and repressing the memory which obviously means that Eileen was sexually abused by her father because all roads lead to kid-fucking, I guess. Speaking for about two hours on the stand, Lauftus described for the jury multiple experiments she conducted, which indicated that the more traumatic an event is, the more likely you are to distort or omit details in your recall. Other experiments showed that by telling witnesses a different version of events, After the fact, their recollections could be measurably manipulated. Witnesses to a robbery, for instance, could be prompted to change physical descriptions of the perpetrators. The prosecution dismissed all of this. These were normal memories, they insisted, and had nothing to do with repressed ones. Which, Lauftus was forced to admit, yes, she never tested this on repressed memories because how the fuck could she? Disregarding both the scientific process and the judicial standard of innocent until proven guilty, Lauftus was asked to prove a negative. Her frustration is palpable. Quote, I was beginning to realize that repression was a philosophical entity requiring a leap of faith in order to believe. For those unwilling to take that leap, no amount of scientific discussion could persuade them otherwise. Science, with its innate need to quantify and substantiate, stood helpless next to the mythic powers of repression. And in the end, George Franklin was convicted of first-degree murder. Despite this measurable harm being done, Lauftus is still sympathetic to the other side. She says that therapists are caught in a double bind, an ethical catch-22, the balance between challenging delusions, distorted thinking, and other mental traps, and honoring the client's pain and personal reality is a tricky one. 
too far to one side and you may feed into a detrimental madness. Too far to the other side and you have lost the client's trust, possibly traumatizing them out of seeking further help or sending them scurrying into the arms of someone much less careful with the human mind. Which brings us to discussion question number two. I ask you, my grim-faced friends, how do we strike the balance that Lauftus described when faced with experiencers, psychics, or other night wanderers, how do we honor both story truth and happening truth? I think this is tough because especially when it comes to like some of the things that I guess that we're going to encounter, you know, in, in our reading, you know, think, you know, mediums and uh, UFO experiencers and things like that. Ultimately, I think a lot of it's going to come down to um, how what they're saying fits in with everything else that, that's going on inside the world. And I don't want to say that, like, if it's different, therefore it's fake. That's not, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, like, it's kind of like Woody, right? With, right. With, like, well, and that's a great example because that book, in my opinion, is almost all story truth. Right. And no, I, I agree. But I do also believe that Woody probably did encounter something with Indrid Cold. Yeah. Uh, for um, listeners at home who don't remember, we're talking about uh, My vi Visitors from Lanulus yeah, by Woodrow Derenberger, which we covered on a previous episode. Episode 19. So, like, I think that's that's kind of like what, you, what you've got to do is it's almost like trying to read between the lines. And ultimately, in a lot of these scenarios, we could be wrong. Everything that Woody said could have been true. It could be... Uh, uh, happening truth instead of story truth. It could be. We don't know. And ultimately, I guess it's like for us, it's what are we going to take to move ourselves forward along our own journey versus um, what what's a nice story that, that we heard, you know, and then how we react to it. And ultimately, I I think regardless of whether or not you believe that something is true 100% this definitely happened versus an exaggeration or a story or whatever um i think it ultimately comes down to as long as if they're not harming somebody else so we just have to be kind about it you know like i'm not going if i had met woody derenberger would i have called him a liar to his face no would i have listened to his stories when he told them to me absolutely 100% doesn't mean i would have believed him but I would have listened and I would have engaged with it, you know, in, in, in that form, in that way, you know, I, I'm not gonna, I guess, no, don't be, regardless of whether or not you think it's story truth or happening truth, engage with it, but don't let it be harmful. Well, it's a lot like right? how we talk about uh, the books we cover, uh, kind of put on your believer caps while you're reading it, engage yeah. with the text as it's presented, and then afterwards you can do your assessment of what tracked, what made sense, what seems real to me, what doesn't. Exactly, and I do the same thing when we go to lectures. Even for when we go to lectures for people that I respect, you know, I, I put on my believer cap when we're, when we're there, and then I almost like break it down afterwards. I go, okay, how do I feel about this now that I've heard it? You know, how does this resonate with, with me, or how does this resonate with my understanding of the phenomenon? And does it challenge anything? Does it move it forward or does it fall flat? Mm -hmm. You know? Well, because at least my opinion is until you do that, 
you can't say you actually understand their story or their point. You right. have to try your best to put yourself in the shoes of they are reporting what they believe happened and this is what they think is going on. Then you can worry about that from your own perspective later. At that point, the first thing you need to do is see it from theirs. Yeah, and and I think that's kind of to the to the point of your question, Jay. I think that's how that's how we're gonna have to like, especially for us, how we're gonna have to strike the balance between the between whether or not it's true, one hundred percent, an exaggeration, story truth or happening truth, is we're gonna have to when we first engage with it, go okay, let's look at it from their perspective and then when we get here that's when we break it down and analyze it a little bit further you know mhm so i don't know i think i think i think it's tough though i think it's real tough to how we're going to how we're going to be able to to do that because ultimately like there are going to be some books and some material that's going to be hard like alien world order yeah my i was unable to engage with that engage that method when it came to that book yeah so i think i, I rory i agree with you i think for me uh the only thing i'll say is that nobody as far as i know has ever gone to prison because they said they saw a ghost right right and that that's the thing is that when we're talking about the paranormal it's almost a little safer because very it very seldom leads to criminal charges Right. Uh, and so believe there's a lot less risk in believing someone there. Uh, but, you know, I still think it holds of, you know, even if you do 100 uh, percent believe an abuse victim until you can corroborate that as happening truth via physical evidence, via uh, multiple witnesses that are able to independently corroborate each other without having been able to communicate with each other or see the same therapist as we see a couple times in this book. Yeah. Then, yes, you say, yes, I see you're in pain. I see you are dealing with something. I can't say that the memories you're uncovering are accurate enough to say, well, let's go put your parents in prison. But I could say that's very clearly causing you emotional duress. I can provide comfort there. I can give, you know, say I, I will entertain that you are telling the truth. I will uh, respond to it as if it is the truth while I'm talking with you, because that's being a good person, in my opinion, you, having empathy for another human being. And even if what's causing them trauma isn't real, uh, it kind of goes back to, you know, you don't have a right to dictate what's real to someone else. Yeah. Uh, if Especially if it's not having, again, happening consequences. Story truth loses its power when it begins creating happening consequences. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it kind of goes back to that, uh, an adage I, I've heard before, and I know I've said it before, which is, uh, your rights end where mine begin, and that we are all entitled to our own uh, version of reality up until the point that we are forcing it upon others. And on a legal context, I mean, I have the right to do what I believe. I believe we all have the right to do what we wish up until the point that we are taking that ability away from other people. Yeah. And I, I think that I mean, it's kind of a similar uh, philosophy to what how I think we need to approach these in that, yes, believe people when you're talking to them or at least give them the benefit of the doubt. And it doesn't matter what your personal beliefs are about that. What, what matters is that we make sure it doesn't get things don't get carried away and to the point that we are putting innocent people in prison or potentially innocent people in prison because our legal system is predicated on, on innocent until proven guilty. And what's so infuriating about so many of the cases in this book is that that was the first thing thrown out the window. The moment a memory came out, guilt was assumed of the accused perpetrators at every level. We had police who immediately assumed they did it. We had therapists who immediately assumed they did it. 
We had prosecutors who immediately assumed they did it. And no one stopped to question the fundamental assumption of the base of these cases of can memories be repressed? I, I agree that memories can be forgotten, but yeah. there's not there really isn't scientific evidence to say that they can be repressed. It's never been conclusively tested. No, and uh, ultimately, even throughout most of this book, it seems like the question is still maybe, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, Lauf, Lauftus says repeatedly, it's like, obviously, we can't prove a negative, but um, this is also one of the hardest, like, most hard science books we've read in a while. Oh, hands down. Like, yes. oh, oh, yeah. Because quite frankly, once I was finished with this, I was absolutely standing much more in her camp of like, no, I don't really, I don't really think this is a thing. Like she, like there, no one has been able to prove any quantifiable, falsifiable evidence that repression, the way repression advocates describe it, functions. And what's much more compelling is the is the evidence that come out that it's like, no, 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 it's actually very easy to fuck with your memories and complete and create completely false ones, even by accident. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like, it is. And I I yeah, I personally I think prison is the line for the balance between happening truth and story truth when someone's freedom or life or, you know, gainful employment is being threatened simply because of story truth and there's no happening truth to back it up, that's that's the line for me because I, the older I get, the more I struggle to believe that anyone belongs in prison, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I agree there, but that's a topic for another uh, conversation. But yeah. I, I will say, like, I think when it, I think when, again, when it comes down to it, the difference when we're talking about paranormal stuff specifically in relation to this topic, it's safer. Like we, yes. we're not putting people in prison and we're not burning witches anymore. Uh, at most you're going to be seen as kooky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's the difference. Cause I think there are a lot of people who want to make a false equivalency between these two things, between uh repressed memory syndrome leading to innocent people going to jail and people believing in say UFO abduction or believing in ghosts. Uh, when in my mind, they are not the same. It's not the same gravity. There's yeah. not the same consequence in our real physical reality that we have to deal with every day. Uh, yeah. And I think as long as that remains true, it's again, it, you don't lose anything by giving someone an ear. You don't lose anything by being kind. Yeah. You start to lose, uh, I guess your, uh, I don't know. How do I put it? Your good guy badge. When you start taking that and using it to subjugate others, despite the fact that really you can't prove any of the claims being made. Yeah, honestly, like a lot of these therapists deserve to go to prison. I, I, I agree, especially some. Of, I mean, especially like ones like uh, Gandalfs who it, Lynn's therapist should have lost his license. Well, it, especially the whole, you know, the moment that she can't pay for therapy, then he's pissed, and oh then, yeah, that shit fucking. Oh my god, well, and one eighty. Well, and yeah. then, and his exact like he I don't remember the exact wording, but when she begged him, begged him to not do this, he said, "Well, I'll tell you what, give it two years, and once you're out, I'll accept you back as a patient." It's like that's not the issue here. Yeah, the issue is you're locking this woman in prison against her will. Yeah, and she has not done anything to deserve that. You've just decided that is the next step because she stopped being able to pay you. Yeah, yeah, it shows your priorities as a therapist. That. That state psychiatrist who looked at her file and realized it was bullshit should get a fucking medal. Yeah, Un is just unbelievable. Like the some of the way that these therapists treated their patients, like these people are 
they're coming to you for help. Yeah. And you are manipulating them and essentially brainwashing them into something that isn't true. Yeah. Because you are, because it's the flavor of the week, essentially. No, that that's exactly, that's exactly what happened is that the blunt truth is SRA memories were trendy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's why this was happening is they were fucking trendy. And this is unfortunately just a thing with mental health care in general is every time a shiny new diagnosis pops up in the DSM or is floating around in other professional circles, every, there's a large swath of them that want to just slap it on everyone because it's the shiny new thing. And maybe you're going to be one of the first ones to get to write a fancy book about it. Like, I'm going to say what is likely a very unpopular opinion amongst the psychology, psychiatry, and therapy communities. Um, I don't think I ever want to be get therapy, one-on-one therapy from a psychologist or psychiatrist. I'll stick to social workers. Um, and, and the reasoning is because I've noticed both in my personal life through reading and stuff that I've, I've witnessed and experienced and through this book, that too many psychiatrists and psychologists care more about being published than the actual good that they're doing for their patients. Whereas in my experience with social workers, they're here for you. And that's about it. There is, there is I will state that there is a, there is a definitive streak of social workers attempting to focus more on practical everyday concerns and trying to improve aspects of your external reality in the hopes that that will soothe your internal chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the problems is that uh, is that there were people ending up with psychiatrists who should have been with social workers and people ending up with social workers who should have been with psychiatrists. Yeah, and there are obviously there are scenarios in which you should absolutely go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Yeah, like, we, of, of course. We're not, yes. we're not, of course. We're not, I, I will never allow this show to advocate that you shouldn't go to therapy. No, need. no. What, what I mean is, uh, I guess what I mean is, like, for my everyday, I need to talk to somebody because I'm, I'm depressed. I'm going to go to a social worker. Yeah. And that's just because I don't, I, like, I... I, I, I don't know. It's just it's been better for me and I've been to both. Well, and that, that's the know? thing is it really comes down to what's going to work for you. I think I think the big thing is also to understand that these people that we go to for help and this is not just talking about therapists, it's not, uh, but also think like doctors, mechanics, anyone who's doing yeah. something. They are a person. They will have their own biases and beliefs that come into how they approach the, the issue and they may have other agendas. And as long as we are remaining cognizant of that, we're okay. Because there were people in this book who, once they got in to therapy, were being told repeatedly, you were raped as a child, you raped a child. And they're like, no, that's not right. And then they cut, they stopped going to therapy with that person. We get into trouble when we uh, start, you know, I, again, I, I kind of feel like I'm contradicting myself because earlier I said believe people, but it, again, it goes back to believe people until you have to act on it, until it starts affecting you. And then you need to make an honest assessment of the situation. Yeah. You know, d- don't be passive. Be an uh, active participant in your life and your mental health. Absolutely. Don't like I, I you know, and I've done this with my therapist. Like he'll, uh, he'll tell me something. And if it doesn't jive with me, I push back. You know, because like that may have been his gut reaction on something or the initial thought. And then we you know, because it doesn't jive with me, 
I push back a little bit and he either explains his thought process or we, or we dive deeper into whatever it is so that we can uncover whatever it is that we're talking about. And ultimately, like a lot of these, in a lot of these scenarios, it seems like no, they're not pushing back and I get it. They're afraid. They're terrified. They don't know what's going on. Um, but it's like, you, people need to, I, I guess it's like people need to remember that they have to, even to their therapist, stand up for themselves. Yes. Yes, you are, be it a psychiatrist, a social worker, or a psychologist, you are always entitled to a second opinion. And as as Rory said, you are always entitled to stick to your guns and be like, no, I. it does not matter how much of an expert they are. You are the one who has lived in your own mind since the moment you were born. You will always know it better than they do. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and I think that's just it. It's like, they don't, I've been with my therapist for years. And he knows, he knows me in and out. He can tell if I'm having a bad day when he looks at me, you know. But there are still times when he and I disagree on stuff. And, but that's normal. And, and th that's how the relationship to me, that's how it should be. You know, like, you, it, this, your therapy isn't your therapist's, like, he is not, they are not God in this scenario. They do not tell you how you should live your life. Their purpose is to help guide you, help you get better so that you can do it on your own. That's it. You know, they're not, they're not going to, and so many of the therapists in this didn't do that. Yeah. They made it so that they were everything uh -huh. to their patients, like that cult shit. And that, that shit makes me so mad. And it's, oh, th this it book should. was hands down the most infuriating we've ever dealt with. Because here's the thing. Alien World Order made, made me a little made me a little feisty. Yeah, but it was all lies and fake well, shit. Well, that, that's the thing. You know? is I, I was just mad that I'd, I'd had some of my time wasted. Yeah. This is uh, uh, a scales of magnitude different. Yeah. Uh, because there are people who are murdered. Yeah. People, people who whose lost lives their, were ruined. Not, yeah, ruined or lost because the, uh, some therapist got onto a trend. The one guy got fucking killed after he was acquitted. Yeah. Yep. Like yep. that that one, I put the book down. I walked away. I couldn't I, keep going after that I story. Was, I was late from my lunch because I was so upset because I read a lot on my lunch break and I was so upset that I couldn't go back in until after I had like calmed down because I was just not okay. Which I yeah. will say this on a, a side note. Uh, Loftus does such a good job, like from a narrative perspective. Those anecdotes are so well written to pluck at the heartstrings. And now, granted, I'm not sure how much of that is Loftus and how much of that is Ketchum because yeah. Catherine Ketchum, I actually looked into her a little bit. She is basically a professional co-author. Mm. She works with doctors and scientists who are maybe are not as good with uh, wordplay, and she takes their ideas and writes a book with it. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah so I, like, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that was her then just because, like, the the storytelling in those was phenomenal. Yes. M far more than, like, it was so good that I was like, this was fucking psycho a psychologist or psychiatrist that wrote this uh, shit? She is a research psychologist, so yeah. she is not a clinician. She spends all of her time in the laboratory. Right. right. And Ketchum, I mean, all the, her other books, which I, I can talk about during the About the Author, but, I mean, she's worked with uh, experts on addiction and more a bunch of ones about abuse and things like, and uh, bereavement. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's definitely in her ballpark of things that she's been writing about for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. That's a heavy question. Are we uh, ready to move on to the next section? Yeah, I think we are. Yeah.
Now that that's out of the way, let's learn about some crazy science experiments. In the mid-20th century, neurosurgeon Dr. Wilder Penfield, which is an amazing fucking name. It is. <laughs> performed a series of experiments with epilepsy patients. Everybody calm down. This is not going to be as mad sciencey as it's about to sound. In an attempt to reduce the frequency or severity of their seizures, he would cut into their skulls and remove small portions of the cortex. Stop screaming. Everything is fine. <laughs> to prevent the accidental lobotomies that would justify the earlier screaming, patients' brains were mapped using electrical stimulation. It was the result of these stimulations that led to a popular theory of memory formation. You see... Sometimes, when certain areas of the brain received the electrical charge, the patient would have intensely vivid flashbacks. Moving the stimulator from spot to spot triggered different memories. Because of these observations, many people, scientists and laymen alike, were under the impression that the brain records everything. We simply have to give it some gas and the memory pops back up. But hang on a tick. Did anyone verify these flashbacks? Of course not. No, of course they didn't. <laughs> and what was more, only 3.5% of Penfield's patients had the flashbacks at all. In the decades since Penfield's observations, scientific consensus on memory has begun to shift. To quote psychologist Ulrich Nessier, recent research featuring high-tech brain mapping procedures indicates that memory is not a broad, generalized capability drawing on a centrally located storehouse of images and experiences, but a network of numerous separate activities, each carried out in a specific part of the brain. I, I, I really have to ask why every scientist you quote sounds like they're from New England or somewhere on the East Coast. I have to indicate it's a quote. Could you say quote? I do. Okay. Nick, Nick, you're the one who's been, you, you and Rory have been talking about how horrible and dark and heartbreaking this book is. And when I try to have just a little fun to cope with it, just, just get off my back. Yeah, all right. Get off my back. <laughs> Memories, it is currently theorized, begin forming in the visual system. Based on different perceptions by the witnesses, perceptions as in smells, sounds, emotions, and logical observations, that information is then telegraphed to appropriate brain regions. The cells there then undergo physical changes as they, quote-unquote, record the memory. The hippocampus is responsible for connecting these various areas. Essentially, it is the tool bench where the components of each memory are cobbled together upon recall. Therefore, Lauftus describes the brain as a series of nets of information, all overlapping, tangling, and tearing. Several experiments are described here, all verifying or supporting earlier things that Lauftus had asserted about leading witnesses or fabricating memories. In one experiment, a video was shown to a group of children. In the video, a stranger is warning a young girl not to play near a pond. Next, the video shows the girl lying to a cop, saying that the stranger hit her. Some of the children watching the video actually manufactured memories of seeing her be hit. Another instance of manufactured memories involves real violence. On February 24th, 1984, a sniper opened fire on an elementary school playground, killing one child and a passerby and injuring 13 other people. In the aftermath, members of a UCLA program interviewed many surviving students and discovered that children who weren't even at school that day still developed memories of seeing the gunfire. But as Lauftus has conveyed to us, 
data is not stronger than our terror of child predators or our fascination with the darkest regions of our own minds. Eileen Franklin was far from the only person sending someone to court or even to prison based on repressed memories that were pulled to the surface in therapy. So Loftus was feeling pretty beaten down by the time she attended the annual APA meeting, American Psychological Association, and listened to a talk delivered by George Ganaway, Alternative Hypotheses Regarding Satanic Ritual Abuse Memories. Ganaway had some controversial opinions at the time. Firstly, he believed that multiple personality disorder was overdiagnosed, particularly in cases involving alleged SRA memories. The SRA memories themselves, he said, were likely not factual. To apply Tim O'Brien's terms to Ganaway's points, the SRA memories were story truth. Furthermore, he blamed the prevalence of both SRA memories and MPD diagnoses on the overuse of hypnosis. He felt the technique was being misapplied, that therapists were unaware of how suggestible patients, especially hypnotized ones, actually are. Those suffering from dissociative disorders are extremely prone to hypnosis. They can actually enter into hypnotic states without actually being hypnotized, he warned, as stress can cause them to shut down or enter into a light trance in order to cope. I can actually also confirm this professionally. Um, I've heard from psychologists trained in hypnosis that you're not supposed to hypnotize anyone who has a significant dissociative disorder because of things like this. After the talk, Lauftus had the itch to start experimenting. How, she wondered, could she ethically test out implanting a traumatic event? Not just altering an existing recollection, but creating a brand new one out of whole cloth. Knowing that the ethics board already had the bad science beheading axe out and polished, she began brainstorming with her grad assistants. The memory had to be mildly traumatic and implanted by an authority figure, or by someone the subject trusted. After a discussion with cognitive psychologist Denise Park, the perfect option was found. Getting lost in a shopping mall, as a small child, and the memory could be coaxed into existence by a parent or a sibling. They could even conduct a few tentative field tests. At a party, a friend's eight-year-old daughter, who was described as very logical and sensible by her father, was guided into remembering being lost in a mall three years prior. In fact, the girl, Jenny, started to add her own details about the incident, describing her fear as she slowly built the memory right before their eyes. Lauftus's grad students were given a similar assignment. With some safety guidelines in place, the students ventured out to see if they could get their friends to remember bars they'd never been to or their parents to remember concerts they'd never attended. Like Jenny, these subjects added their own details to the false memories. Like Jenny, these subjects added their own details to the false memories. And these constructed memories actually seemed more vivid and long-lasting than the actual events. Which brings us somewhat seamlessly to question number three. This book is built upon hard science, proving and disproving. After this somewhat grim return to the stainless steel roads, how are we feeling about the relationship between our night wanderings and the scientific establishment? Is there a possibility of working together? Or, as I said earlier, should things stay where they've been put? Um, okay, so to answer this question, a few things. One, 
I think when we're discussing uh, this book in relation to this question specifically, we do have to remember it was released in the late 90s. Yes, it was. Which Early even, 90s, actually. Even though that, oh, early 90s, which even though that doesn't feel like it was that long ago, we're coming up on 30 years now. And quite a bit has changed, not only about our world, but how uh, some of these topics are even seen. Since then, we've seen the rise of paranormal TV shows that have increased the rate of people believing in ghosts. We have seen the uh, modern disclosure age. A lot of these things that were uh, kind of written off as complete nonsensical, well, they still are by many, but are beginning to kind of leak into the mainstream. So we are at a slightly different time than when this was written. That said, uh, I think if looking at the situation today, I think that, yes, it's already happening. We're already seeing uh, some scientists kind of wander over onto the midnight roads. Right now, I mean, just recently, Gary Nolan's been all over uh, television. He's a known and respected scientist who's taking kind of stepping into the uh, UFO and alien topic. And we're already seeing more and more scientists doing so, uh, much like those of the past have done. I would think uh, Guy L. Playfair, even though he wasn't a scientist, but Rupert Sheldrake, Ian Stevenson, Jim Tucker. Uh, the big thing is that, though, is that it is a slow change that we've been seeing. Right now, and I think we're going to have to, at some point, merge those two approaches. We're going to have to merge science and mysticism. We're going to have to get science to take an honest look at uh, the paranormal in mass, or we're never going to advance as a species. And that's just my personal belief. That's my personal opinion. I could be wrong. I have to leave room open for that, right? Uh, regarding this question specifically, I think it's something that's inevitable. We have to do it. Uh, but I think it's going to cause a lot of friction on the way, and it already has. I mean, we already see all the uh, people who kind of get doggedly set in their rut of what they believe and it reminds me of something that Mitch Horowitz said when we were talking to him. Uh, for our listeners at home, timeline-wise, we spoke with him yesterday. Huh, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, he, when we were talking to him, he was talking about how scientific consensus changes over time. And it's not by the emergence of new facts or research. It's by the death of all those who held the previous paradigm in place. Mm -hmm. And so I think on a long enough timeline, this will happen whether we like it or not, whether we push for it or not, simply because eventually things change. Things are always in a state of change, and eventually uh, the boat of humanity will drift to that shore, and we'll find out what's over there. Uh, I mean, which might be a little bit depressing from those of us who were, you know, really hoping to see a brand new world in the next 10 years, and who knows, maybe that'll happen. Maybe the mothership will come into the sky, and everything will change overnight, but history says otherwise. Yeah, and it's the, I think that even imagining that is almost giving yourself some kind of weird false hope, though I don't know if it's hope or uh, grim. Yeah, I know. <laughs> because I, ultimately, we don't know what would happen if that happened. Right. And so, yeah, I, I guess when it comes down to this question, um, I, I still like science. I still have a lot of faith in science. I think the big thing it comes down to, though, is uh, we have to understand mistakes are always possible and we can't we don't we don't know what we don't know. Right. You can never say and this is just my belief. You can never be an expert on anything ever. And the reason is, is because you have no way of knowing how much more information there is out there about the topic that you're not aware of. Right. And until you unless you have that kind of omnipotence where you can say, yes, I have collected Every scrap of data about this, about X thing that exists in the universe, and you can't do that, uh, 
then you, you can't really say, I fully understand this. We should always be in a mode of questing and searching and revising our beliefs based on what we find out there. And sometimes we'll come upon a good idea that sticks and it will stay that way maybe for your whole life. But you shouldn't assume that it's going to stay that way forever. Uh, if if history has shown us anything, if the universe has shown us anything, is that permanence really isn't a thing. Change is the only constant. Yep. And so we should assume that the same is going to be true about our ideas and our understanding of the universe and not throw a shit fit every time that that uh, it, it happens. Yeah. It's like you know, it, it's kind of like moving to Seattle and getting pissed off every time it rains. <laughs> right. No, I, I agree with you. I, I, I also believe strongly in, in science, um, but I also believe in evolution, you know, and both evolution in the physical sense, but also of ideas in science. I, it, it evolves. It changes. Um, what we understand or what we understood and, and thought as unfallible laws of physics are changing right now. Mm -hmm. We're seeing more and more, especially at the quantum level, that the world may not work like we thought it did. In fact, the world likely doesn't work like we think it does. And that is radical to a lot of people. It's, it's going to break them. Well, just the, the simple assertion, which is, I mean, currently one of the most hotly debated conclusions some quantum physicists are drawing, changes everything. Our fundamental understanding of self, of reality, which is that space-time may not be fundamental. In fact, if, if the current experiments indicate anything, it's very much likely not fundamental. Right. Time and space, they don't exist. They are illusions we hold in our head. Yeah. And uh, some of the, I, I don't know all the details, but I know some of the uh, the hypotheticals that they're going about with, because they can't do actual experiments with, with them yet, but some of the hypotheticals that they're uncovering about the possibilities of of what wormholes might be capable of doing just because of their, their nature is wild. Yep. And it would, if we were able to replicate it, radically change everything, you know, and, and that, that might be transgalactic travel right there. I, it might be interdimensional travel. It might mean it, it very likely would lead to time travel. Jesus Christ. Like that's some of the shit that they, that they think might be possible just by replicating the idea, like what a wormhole is capable of doing. And that's that's radical to a lot of people. That's crazy. That's that's nonsense. That's but it's happening. You know, yep. regardless of whether or not you want to want it to or not, it's happening. We, we and, ha they have in a recent test. I was just reading about this. They believe they have witnessed a particle move backwards in time. Right. Like that's insane. And yeah. but we but it's happening in such a small scale. I think a lot of people feel comfortable disregarding it. It's like yeah. it's happening in that, you know, wonky place of electrons and protons and the things my science teacher lied to me about. Oh, you mean the shit we're made of? Hush now, I am made of meat and God's love. And that meat's made of protons. <laughs> but I, I think uh, to answer your question, I think that the the answer is that there is a possibility of working together between science and and the the woo or you know the believers or whatever you want to call it because history tells us that eventually science catches up <laughs> it's like i mean so much of science is developed off of other people's ideas like how many people out there that went into you know astrophysics were fans of star trek right you know and they did it because they love they love that 
that stuff. And so they wanted to make one for themselves. And so they spend their life trying to replicate that idea that was just, you know, some nerd in a basement being funny or thinking it would be cool. And so real scientists make it happen. Real in quotations. I mean, it's it's long been known. Science fiction predates science fact. Right. So many of our inventions came about because some author thought, hey, this would be neat. No, exactly. And that's kind of my point. Like, science does, it seems like so much of what science does is prove, is, is set out on a mission to prove what we believe is true. Yep. Now, I will say this. This is, uh, I guess, my disclaimer. Uh, obviously, because we like paranormal stuff, we read all these books, we have our own various paranormal beliefs. Uh, of course, the three of us are going to pretty frequently come off like we're assuming that, you know, again, like what Rory said, science will catch up, that there is some truth here to be found. Um, now, I do believe that strongly that we have to always leave the little bit of thought in our head that we're wrong, that we could be wrong about all of this, that it, it, we do live in a materialist flesh and blood universe and there is nothing else going on that we don't already understand. I don't think that's likely. I don't think that's true. But uh, I, I think that that's the way forward. We, if we could all adopt that kind of worldview of I could be wrong and it's okay. That's how we, we start to mediate between uh, the midnight road and the stainless steel road. Between a purely uh, scientific analytical view of the universe and one that encompasses these other aspects of, of existence that have been reported for, what, 200,000 years of our history now? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, I, I just want to make that point. It is important that we understand that, hey, we, we could be wrong, but the point, also, we will never find that out until we take an accurate, an honest scientific look at the situation, yeah. which is part of what boggles my mind of why there's not more research into this, because again, even if none of it's true, wouldn't you want to figure out why so many people think it is? Why all these experiences are coming from? At the end of the day, you'll still learn something. It's like they're afraid we're going to shout, made you look. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're just, or, and a lot of it honestly comes down to them probably just being afraid that it is true because it, it defies their idea of logic and defies their idea of, uh, of truth. Yeah. You know, as, as we were talking about in the first question, they believe they know so many, especially skeptics, they believe that they know the truth and that what they believe is 100%. That's it. I mean, fucking look at Ben Shapiro. Like I hate to bring it to politics, but he's such a good example of this. He is. He is so dogmatic in his belief of what is logical and what is true, but what he doesn't understand is everything that he's saying and the way he says it is illogical and not backed in truth. You know, and it's just fucking mind-boggling. Well, it kind of goes back to, it uh, doesn't matter how logical your argument are, is, if your underlying assumptions are wrong, it's wrong. Exactly. Um, and again, I'm reminded of uh, Stephen Volk's book, Fringology, that we covered. The whole idea that our brains react more strongly to threats against our worldview than threats against our life. It is our worldview is what allows us to feel safe and feel like we we have an understanding of the world around us. And we're not just at the whim of a chaotic universe that we have no influence on. Um, and the, the fact is that there might be more truth to that than to any of our belief systems. And that includes uh, pure scientism. 
Now, one other thing I will I will want to point out, and I know I've I've done that. We do this all the time, but when we're talking about skeptics, it's important to remember we're talking about dogmatic skeptics. We're yeah, we're we're, we're, talk, we're talking correct. about cynics. We're talking about people who are unwilling to engage the topic at all because there's no point in looking because there couldn't possibly be anything there. Right. That's what I mean. Because I'm definitely skeptical of of you know I I put on my skeptic hat with everything that we that we talk about. You know I bring a level of skepticism to everything. I think all three of us do. Yeah. When I mean when I say that it's it's the 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 blind skeptics, the ones that you know. Like like the 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 new atheist movement the, kind the, of thing. yeah I was gonna say like the people we were talking about with Mitch yeah. yesterday slash on the recent midnight chats of the people who think that not only choose the people who not only disbelieve what we believe but believe we have committed a moral failing by believing what we believe yeah yeah well and yeah I I think that yes we will we will one day have to have a full reckoning between these two disparate worldviews and i really hope i honestly hope it happens i there's a part of me and again i again i could be wrong but there's a part of me that sometimes thinks that that is the only way we're going to make peace with ourselves as a species if we come to accept that hey other people are going to believe different things and we shouldn't be offended by that we should be trying as a group collectively to come at truth to approach truth to find it and to understand that we likely never will, and that's okay. There's there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I wouldn't be shocked at all if that's the point of living. If there is an afterlife, maybe that's where truth is known. Uh, going back to Whitley Strieber's vision of the Golden City, the place where truth is known, the other world. Maybe we're not meant to know here. Maybe we're meant to be stumbling about in the dark and coming to certain ideas. Uh, and And part of that is also, again, part of that is definitely tilted by my own beliefs and biases because to me the idea of a world where all where we know everything where there's no more mystery that is suffocating yeah like i I agree that's why i i am so drawn to these sorts of topics because they imply that there is more out there than can be distilled in a chemistry lab yep yeah absolutely and yeah i I admit that's my own personal belief and then but we're all gonna we we all we all always will bring our own personal beliefs and personal bias into into this. It's, we're human. It's impossible not to. Yep, exactly. Well, and and that's the thing is everyone's human. Exactly. Once yeah. you understand, you have to keep that in mind. And once you you do, I don't know. It makes a lot more of our world make sense. Yeah. Yep. I, I do. Here's the thing: is part of me thinks that they might never merge into the same camp of thought. I, I Part of me feels like materialist science and what we do are always going to be at odds, but I feel like if we move past the vitriol, if we move past the disrespect, if we move past the need that seems to exist on both sides to some extent to utterly destroy each other, I think maybe it would be good for those to stay separate things, to stay as opposing sides, just because this book has shown me a need for checks and balances exists. There needs to be someone who, when a story gets too crazy, plants their feet and goes, you need to give me some fucking facts or we can't have this discussion. I mean, like, I think that, like, having... I mean, that not that kind of the point of peer review? Yeah. And, and all of that. So, well, and yeah. the frustrating thing about that is that right now we're in a situation, though, where uh, 
All right, so let's 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 frame these in hypersimplistic personification. Science v. Uh, occultism. Let's just call it that. All right. Well, now we're in this situation though, where yes, there are some parts of science that are looking at occultism, but it's very small. It's on the low level, and we're in this situation where when those people who are trying to apply scientific thinking to the occult side of this try to take those that their results back to get peer reviewed uh they're re- they're encountering a, a brick wall yeah which and i think that's the issue is that ultimately it's not a problem that we have different ideas like you're getting at jay it's that we're unwilling to embrace that fact uh-huh um and we're fucked until we do <laughs> quite frankly we're gonna we, we've had this is the course of human history we love killing each other over our ideas over things that we made up that are ultimately largely in our head and it well i do acknowledge obviously we science has done amazing things for our species and it, it's it there is something there there has to be i tend to see it more like it's understanding the mechanics of the video game we're all playing um but uh, but ultimately what it comes down to it is again we can't assume they know everything we can't assume every scientific theorem is gospel truth because many have been disproven. Yeah, no, right? a- absolutely. Even right now, one of our, you know, the greatest scientists in the past century or so, Albert Einstein, his whole idea of uh, uh, some of his whole ideas about the conception of reality, about space time, looking more and more unlikely. Yeah, actually, yeah. I'm and uh, uh, I actually just lost my train of thought. So keep on going. Yeah. His his wrong answers got us closer to the right ones, and that's the beautiful thing about pure science that I feel like they don't realize they have in common with us, that it's like fucking up is incredible. Getting ha- it wrong is incredible. Yeah, exactly, because it's like, okay, this is awesome. We know it doesn't work like that anymore, and we are st- one step tr- closer to knowing how it does work because we've eliminated that as a possibility, and isn't that the most beautiful thing in the fucking world? How many times did Thomas Edison fail to make a light bulb? 99. How many times did the Orvilles fail to make, or Orvilles? The Wrights? Right. Right, yeah, brother, the Wrights. not the, the Orvilles. Wrights, yeah, the Wrights fail to make an airplane. Thousands. You, you know, like... You have to fail. You have to stumble. It's just like science is science is just like life. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fuck up. It's all about how you pick yourself, pick it back up and keep going. Yep. Which really, I think, just comes down to resist dogma. Yeah, no, exactly. Dogma is in, again, my opinion, dogma is one of the greatest social ills of the entire history of our species. Yeah, no, I agree. There's a, a, a TikToker that I really like. Um, even though I disagree with him on quite a lot. Um, and one of his slogans is data over dogma. And I do agree with that to an extent, like data over dogma for sure, but not everything has data. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's kind of why I think that even if, 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 if the two types of roads do work with each other, I don't think they can merge. And part of me thinks that they shouldn't of like i mean i think a merger is inevitable because like i said science eventually will prove or disprove one way or the other so the merger will in a in a way happen but at the same time there will always be those that are questioning and keeping themselves separate that will never get away from that that's that's human nature and i agree i think that's a good thing yeah Mm -hmm. we we just need to learn to not 
hate the people who disagree with us. Exactly. Yes, exactly. exactly. That is now, exactly what I feel so of like. I will, we, we go back to the don't be an asshole. Don't yes. be a dick. Yes. Now, like you don't have a right to dictate what, what, what somebody else's ideas or reality are, period. Exactly. Now, that, that may be frustrating, and it's deeply frustrating for me when we live in the age of QAnon. Yeah, oh uh, my God. It pisses me up. And again, it kind of comes back to, uh, yes, your story truth is important right up until you get in the way of other people's truth. Right. Yeah. right until you're trying to force that onto other people. It's like your story truth is important, but is it, like uh, up until the point that it's interfering with somebody's happening truth or their story truth or whatever. Which, I know? mean, granted, is a road to a much stickier ethical discussion, which I don't think we're going to have time for on this episode, no, which is like no, we are not. things like, okay, well, what do you do if from your perspective, what's happening in, say, another culture is barbaric, is mm. evil? Yeah, I mean, that that is a that's a huge question and one that the country of America has been fighting with for, since its inception. I would argue all of hum the whole human species has been fighting with. Uh, yes and no. I would only say no because there was a time period when everybody was just doing that to each other. Yeah. Yeah, so that's fair. It wasn't about defending. It was about conquering. That's fair. Yeah, and I, I don't have an answer to any of it. I. Uh, How could we? Yeah. But I know my brain hurts. That means I'm trying. Uh-huh. To, uh, to give uh, Nick's brain a bit of a break, should we move on to the last couple sections? Please. All right. In Chapter 9, Digging for Memories, Loftus and Ketchum directly tackle both the rhetoric and techniques of repression advocates, addressing each in turn. The rhetoric section dives into the core tenets or beliefs that are commonly espoused by repression advocates. The techniques section addresses the therapeutic methods by which repressed memories are recovered and treated. The first of these core tenets, found in Secret Survivors, Courage to Heal, and many other books and pamphlets, is that incest is epidemic. Psycho psychologist Judith Lewis Herman refers to incest as a common and central female experience. Some studies seem to corroborate this claim. For instance, the August 1985 survey by the Los Angeles Times estimated that 38 million adults were abused as children. But please note that the definition of sexual abuse and molestation seems almost as shaky as the definition of repression or treason or excessive force by an officer of the law. E. Sue Bloom, author of Secret Survivors, includes a list of things she considers to be incestuous abuse. And there are some examples that are questionable, such as a bus driver asking a certain child to sit next to him while he drives. That's creepy, but <sighs> Bloom and the authors of Courage to Heal clarify that in terms of abuse, it is less about what is done and more about how it impacts the child. Happening truth versus story truth. It is the way the action is performed, more so than the performance itself. And the distress does not need to be present at the time of the incident. If the child, as an adult, retroactively describes the event as abusive, it is abusive. The next core tenet is that repression is just as common as abuse. Self-help author John Bradshaw, in his magazine column, proclaimed that a full 60% of survivors repress all memories of their abuse. Also found in this subsection of the book is psychologist Rebecca Fredrickson's assertions about repressed memories operating in the present tense, quote unquote. 
Essentially, Fredrickson says, when a memory is repressed, the repressor has no hope of moving past the abuse. As far as their unconscious is concerned, it will be happening forever. This, apparently, is why the repressed trauma manifests as present-day psychiatric illness. But like with the possible skewing of the above stats, Lauftus expresses doubts here. With repressed memories being as untestable as they are, how can we know what issues are caused by repressed memories and which ones come from other sources? Repression advocates, however, believe in erring on the side of you were abused and actively discourage patients, clients, and survivors from looking into opposing voices. They claim it will only confuse people who are already fragile and make them doubt the realities of their abuse. E. Sue Bloom insists that contradictory studies are, in fact, flat-out fraudulent, part of a grand conspiracy to hide the extent of the incest problem. Skeptics, like Lauftus, are painted as the enemy. Ellen Bass, rather condescendingly, asserts that the only reason to doubt these claims at all is out of cowardice, an inability to face the true horrors being presented. Again, we have therapists saying to allegedly fragile trauma victims, I am the only one you can trust and are still coming out of this thinking they are the good guys. Another popular talking point among repression advocates is about the power of healing and of recovery. While recovery is, of course, a wonderful thing to work towards, the vision of it that has been painted here is not ideal, in my opinion, or in Lauftus's. Many popular repression advocates and authors do not just promise a secession of personal pain, but of global pain as well. To quote Lauftus's summary of these points, quote, Recovery gradually takes on the shine of truth, of the righteous fight, the global battle to end oppression and join hands with all who suffer, not just from sexual abuse, but from any kind of fear or prejudice. Survivors are assured that their cause goes beyond their own healing, for by healing themselves, they contribute to healing the world. End quote. Just as radical feminism often tangles itself up with ecological justice, so too does this school of thought. The sexual abuse of children is, by Ellen Bass in particular, compared to environmental destruction. Pollution is referred to as the rape of the earth. Encouraged to heal, she and her co-author Davis go on to tell survivors that their obligation to heal is an obligation to the world, not just themselves. It is implied that they have the power and responsibility to save the human race by recovering their sexual abuse memories. To quote Courage, how many pedophiles care about toxic waste? Feel like we can all see why that false equivalency is a big fucking problem. Yeah, yeah, I, I might have gone on a bit of a tirade when I got to that point. You know what? You're right. That's why we here at Nestle are proud to pronounce Paul pedophiles against waste. Oh, my God. Now donate some money and drink our water, you fucking peasants. Yep. With all that behind us, we now move on to an overview of the specific techniques used to uncover these memories that are definitely totally for realsies there. The first of these techniques is as simple as it is utterly inelegant. The direct question. Bass and Davis bob up again, instructing clinicians to outright ask, were you sexually abused as a child? Many experiencers of false memories say that they were asked versions of this. Others still say they were not asked but told they were sexually abused, based merely on their depression, struggles with addiction, or their disordered eating. 
Next, we return to the lovely, lovely symptoms list. Some are long. E. Sue Blooms goes on for five pages or short. John Bradshaw smugly believes he can ID incest survivors with only four symptoms. All of them are vague to the point of being nonsense. For instance, Bradshaw believes that merely being afraid to try new things guarantees that you were, quote, damaged between the ages of nine and 18 months. I, I have to point something out here. There seems to be this base assumption that the human natural state is a completely painless, totally adjusted existence. Hey, yeah. And, and that is disproven by... I, I know you can't... The listeners, I mean, see my hand, but I'm just gesturing to everything. Yeah. To existence, yeah. to our world, to all of us, to you at home. We're all deeply fucked up. That's actually um, that's actually a puritanical Christian belief that's been um, absorbed into certain sections of pop psychology. It's believed that all human suffering is a result of Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, and even when people strip away the Christian trappings of that belief, it's still just fucking in there. So yeah, there is this belief among certain poorly trained psycholo- uh, psychologists, social workers, anyone else that works with mental health, or even just people, that... Um, existential ennui has to have some sort of measurable external source because why would you just be miserable for no reason? Ennui. 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 Back to fucking John Bradshaw. In a later column, he also implies that being an adult virgin is strange enough to warrant a trip to the head shrinker. He goes on to encourage those who match with any of these symptoms but lack memories to first accept that they were abused and let the memories come later. Rebecca Fredrickson returns with her own list. This one, as Nick mentioned, lists a fear of basements, frequent daydreaming, being promiscuous or having empathy for abuse victims, all as signs of repressed memories of CSA. Isu Bloom goes on to assert that a poor body image and aversion to noisy sex or the desire to be quote-unquote perfect are dire signs of past sexual trauma or, you know, being Catholic. <laughs> After the direct question has been asked, we move into other techniques of memory recovery. For the sake of time, I will be focusing on imagistic work, dream work, journaling, and hypnosis. Imagistic work is largely focused on calling up random images in your mind. Snapshots of scenes which the patient is haunted by or fixated on, usually. The clinician walks the patient through the image, be it a child being thrown across a room, flashing knife, a dead bird, and urges them to focus on every sight and sensation that is attached to it. When you run out of ones you can observe or recall, you're encouraged to begin adding in new ones, just whatever details feel right. While Rebecca Fredrickson says that the truth or fiction of these images, quote, don't matter, she also swears by their validity, describing the memories her clients recover this way as a, quote, accurate slice of their abuse, end quote. Bass and Davis also endorse imagistic work. They flat out encourage alleged survivors to make up stories about their families. How the hell this is supposed to recover quote-unquote real memories or heal survivors in abuse is not explained in this text. I personally doubt it is explained in any text. Dream work is exactly what the name implies. Survivors are encouraged to sift through their dreams hunting for reoccurring themes or strong feelings, and using those as tools to reconstruct their memories. 
Many psychologists, including Fredrickson, are adamant that dreams are doors to our unconscious mind and that their symbology can be used to uncover literal truths. What dreams and symbols indicate sexual abuse, you may be asking, dear listener? The answer is all of them. No, literally, the answer is all of them. Nightmares involving rapists and murderers, broom handles and bottles, attics and closets are all seen as suspect. Dreams containing quote-unquote access symbols, like doors, passageways, water, or children being unable to communicate, are especially significant. So are literally all reoccurring dreams, no matter how mundane, or any dream at all that the patient has quote, strong feelings about. I feel like the kind of world these people want is one that is fundamentally without emotion yeah, or passion. No, absolutely. Like, like, again, I look at this and I'm just thinking, wow, I, I, I didn't know that I was a child prostitute. But apparently, apparently I was I was ridden around more than Seattle Slough. Yeah. While many therapists insist that dreams are gateways to the unconscious, Lauftus worries that they are, in fact, self-fulfilling prophecies. Another piece of non-evidence used as proof that something happened. Moving on from that, we finally return to our old friend, hypnosis. Fredrickson is cited again. She asserts that hypnosis taps into the unconscious via the same imagistic memory described earlier. When it comes to retrieving memories of abuse in childhood, the most common form of hypnosis is age regression. Once placed into a highly suggestible trance state, subjects are guided to move backwards in time or essentially return to a mental state that they held when they were younger. Once stopped at an age that the client feels is, quote, significant, they are guided to recall images, sensations, and memories of abuse attached to that age. We can presume that if none emerge organically, the clinician has ways of finding them. This method is based on a common belief among repression advocates that recovery of the memories will automatically be healing for survivors. Michael Liu, a repression advocate himself, actually warns against this. His words ring somewhat ominous. Memories are blocked for a reason. Skeptics treat hypnosis much more cautiously. Stephen J. Lynn and Michael Nash, authors of multiple peer-reviewed papers on hypnosis in a variety of contexts, had this to say, quote, Features of the hypnotic context may conspire to elevate the risk of pseudo-memory creation. Hypnosis can increase the confidence of recalled events with little to no change in accuracy. Repeated questioning tends to freeze or harden memories, regardless of the historical accuracy of the memories. And then things get weird. In a solo paper presented in 1992, Nash describes instances where hypnosis recovered genuinely impossible memories. For example, there were patients cited who had been hypnotically age-progressed, sent forward in time to recall events that had not yet occurred. In his personal practice, he goes on to lament he had a patient who, under hypnosis, came to believe he was abducted by, God, I can't even say it, by aliens! A truly baffled Nash states that after two months of therapy, the experiencer's symptoms abated. He was sleeping normally, had no more flashbacks, became more productive in his job, and started rebuilding his social life. He waltzed out of Nash's office a cured man, and Nash is visibly gobsmacked. He stresses to the readers that regardless of the man's improving condition, hypnosis made him see aliens, and shouldn't we all be freaking out more? 
This is also the chapter where Loftus shows us something troubling. Many of the books that teach these techniques also encourage retaliation against the perpetrators. Survivors are told to confront their abusers, to sue them for emotional damages, to send them to court and to prison if that is an option. And while every survivor on the planet has the right to justice, this is murky water. Just ask George Franklin or Doug Nagel or Paul Ingram or any of the other people who faced actual criminal charges over repressed memories. But back to the fun stuff, because that's going to bring us to discussion question number four. I don't know if fun was the right word, but go ahead. (laughs) The difference between the prognosis of Nash's experiencer patient and that of the SRA slash CSA patients is quite stark. In the latter group, they only felt better in therapy or when engaging in memory work techniques. The rest of their lives dissolved. The other patient, let's call him E, actually graduated therapy. Drawing on this book and on John Mack and on our other research, what do we make of that? I mean, so I really did try when engaging this book out of respect for the families that were shattered, for the people that actually, you know, went through severe abuse that were talked about in this book um, to, as best I could, not drag it into woo territory. But then Loftus did it for me. So, you know what, I'm gonna. Uh Before I give my answer to this, I do want to point out this gets at what was my biggest complaint about this book. At multiple points in the book, uh, she equates these SRA memories of uh, being involved in giant satanic baby eating cults and being taken to secret torture rooms as being an being equally ridiculous to uh, alien abduction memories. And I get where she's coming from on that. Obviously, from a flat out just a, a objective look, there are crazy stories. But it did reveal to me that she has not once looked into alien abduction seriously because, I mean, honestly, this book convinced me more about the validity of alien abductions because it doesn't operate clinically how SRA and CRA victims operate. At least from the ones that we've discussed and read about. Yeah, um, because as was brought up here, more often people who uncover memories of abduction uh, their mental health improves after they do that. They know something is missing and they're trying to get it back. Whereas if you look at the situations involving most of the women talked about in this book, um, they they didn't have an awareness of missing memories. Right. They came in due to something else and were convinced that there were missing memories. Whereas in almost every abduction case I've read about, they were distinctly aware of missing time. I lost eight hours. I looked at the clock and something was six hours later. Again and again, we've seen that come up. These things seem to operate in dramatically different ways. Even Streber, who didn't consciously know that something was missing, was acting weird. Like the whole checking the locks eight times before he went to bed at night and all that other shit that even Anne was pointing out. Like, why are you doing that? And that wasn't like it was a lifetime symptom that he suddenly gave a reason to. It started at a discernible point and only continued until he recovered the memories of why he was doing those actions. And and that, it it just hits to me as something very, very different. Um, And the other part is that, well, for example, in uh, Gandalf's case, so she eventually went to a better therapist. She started to kind of get back out in the world, and bit by bit, those recovered memories of abuse started to seem cartoonish, started to seem unreal, and she realized they weren't real. I, well, I, this could be author bias of us not encountering it due to the authors we've read. I have yet to hear of a single person who uncovered memories of alien abduction who later walked back on it, who said, yeah, it's not real. Most of them, their lives get destroyed because they keep repeatedly asserting that this is real. 
And so to me, they they to me, this revealed the fact that Loftus predictably hadn't done any honest looking into the abduction phenomenon. And when it comes to John Mack, again, going back to what we discussed on the episode about the believer, his version of hypnosis was very unlike what was being used here. His hypnosis was more akin to guided meditation. And if you actually look at the transcriptions, it's night and day. In many of these cases, especially the transcriptions provided in this book of some certain therapy sessions, I, I mean, the, 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 it was very clear the therapist came in believing this person was abused and I need to convince them of it. Also, a good chunk of his patients recovered memories before he ever even talked to them. Right. They had fragments. They needed to put pieces together. And so I, I think that they are distinctly different things. I, I, I think that if anything, uh, what, what this shows is that maybe, yes, hypnosis can implant memories and maybe, yes, it can cause some, maybe someone was alien abducted and an overenthusiastic therapist made it significantly worse or changed it. But again, why didn't that, after they leave therapy, slowly revert itself as seems to happen with these uh, sex abuse cases? I, I don't have an answer. I just think it's very interesting. And I, I was a little disappointed in Loftus because she's such an advocate for understanding all sides and being you know, empathetic and being open. And it was very clear she was just completely closed to that branch of people who might need help. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with with everything that you said, I, I just think, I think it's different. I, and I think if you actually look at the, like you said, if you actually look at the evidence of more than just the, the like what, two alien abduction, one alien abduction case that she looked at here, uh, you'll see the stark differences between uh, SRA, CSA, and, and alien abduction um, in terms of how hypnosis is used, in terms of how regression therapy is used, at least when it, we're talking about uh, John Mack and some of the others. I can't say that I know for sure like what J. Allen Hynek and all of them did because... We don't it, know. Yeah, because we don't know. Yeah. Um, it, it, it could be more along this lines. I, I don't know. But in the from what we've read... Uh, I don't believe that that Dr. John Mack did any of this because based on the tapes and what what we've seen and read about, that's not the case. No, it, it, he asked questions, but they yeah. weren't leading. It was what happened next? What do you see? Yeah, what, What's but, in the corner? You know, like it was it was the same kind of shit that you would do if you were listening to a YouTube video about a guided meditation. Right. It, you know, it, it's it was I, I, I say that because I've listened to plenty of guided meditations on YouTube, and they did very similar things. Uh, and, and in fact, in Druidry, one of the one of the techniques or one of the app meditations that we uh, that we do during our uh, during our study is developing our own sacred place. Okay, and in developing your own sacred place, it's not a real place in this sense. It's your meditative sacred grove, right? Right. And in that, they don't. They don't tell you what you see. They just guide you through a meditation. And in it, they're asking questions like, what do you see? What's around you? Is anybody there? You know, it's the same thing that we heard John Mack doing in his hypnosis session. It's not, tell me about when you were raped. Right. It's not, where did that they your, touch you? Yeah. Is that your father standing over you? Like, is he coming? You know, it was like the questions that we heard here and that were referenced here were very leading. John Max weren't yeah. right. Well, and I, I think the um, 
another aspect of it that gets completely ignored with, with this false equivalency is uh okay so in a lot of these uh trials it came up that well where all this stuff happened to these victims where's the scar tissue where's the medical reports and right. they had some of these people some of these uh these people go under medical uh, assessment to see, hey, do they have scars that back up what they're saying happened? Like I, you know, I was for I had four cesareans without three times as a child to remove babies for satanic sacrifice and they'd find no scar. Right. And the answer was more improbable than it was simply made up being that, well, obviously Satanists employ very talented plastic surgeons that remove all signs of the, the abuse, which is madness. Yeah. But then you look on the other side. And it's kind of crazy because then people who say, well, alien abduction isn't real, if presented, I've, I've seen this, when presented with markings on the abductee's body, say, you made those, or they were created by a plastic surgeon, or something along those lines. So it's the same argument coming from both sides regarding to diff slightly different scenarios. Um, and they're both equally ridiculous. Uh, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that also in alien abduction scenarios, we have physical evidence we have independent witnesses like for example the neighbors who saw a craft hovering over streber's house the, these aren't uh memories that are recovered 20 years later they're memories that are recovered of something that happened to you last week yeah, I, yeah. It, it to me it, no exactly it, to me it hits very differently because uh, partially because it feels more like we're talking about memories that uh, let's say repression's real memories that someone willfully repressed of a trauma versus memories that were repressed by something else doing it to you. Right. It was something affecting your mental state, how you stored that memory. Yeah. And and I think um I think one of the biggest points that you brought up that's that 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 shows a big difference between um most alien abduction scenarios and um and this is the missing time. Yeah, because so many of the victims of these SRA and CSA regression sessions, they a lot of them didn't go into therapy thinking that anything was missing or wrong. Yeah, they went in because they were depressed and sad, and then were manipulated. Um, whereas with alien abduction victims, they went they sought out somebody because they knew that there was this this gap of time that was missing and they wanted to know what happened to them rightfully so right yeah well and i obviously we can't preclude the possibility that there aren't some zeal, overzealous hypnotists out there who are trying to make people think they were taken by aliens absolutely. I, I can't i can't yeah. say that that's not happening it probably is somewhere yeah absolutely but, but what i can say is that that doesn't seem to be the case most of the time yeah and in like whitley streber's case he sought out somebody who had no interest in the alien abduction phenomenon so as to help prevent that from happening yep. and that's yep. not that's not rare that's not no. the first time i've heard that yes i remember when we were talking to mary rodwell she had people seeking her out because of her alien expertise but I, I can't, but I don't think that that is e likely even common. I no. think most people are probably going to go to their therapist. Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, as for my answer, I, I too feel like if you actually look at the research on both sides, it is a false equivalency. And quite frank, and this is this is something I'll be describing in a little bit as we go into the last section. There's a thing, there's a phenomenon in here that Lauftus is quite familiar with referred to as psychogenic amnesia, which is basically a, go, undergoing a trauma so intense and shocking it disrupts the biological process of memory formation. And that 
quite frankly, sounds much more like what experiencers uh, have described of like they know something's missing. They're getting these snatches and fragments that don't make any sense out of context. But as as you as you guys said, they're like, I am missing eight hours. Yeah. I know that there are eight hours on last Wednesday that are not accounted for. Yeah. And if you give them context, they just fill in the blanks without needing to be guided. And yeah, that is not that is not what was happening with the CSA memory memory recoverers. It is not. It does not sound like the same thing to me at all. Well, and it, it and it makes me question anyone who off the cuff compares the two, who off the yeah. cuff says these are the same thing because. I'm sorry. In order to make that argument, you can't just say it. It's not a given. And that's that's one thing. I think Loftus took it as a given that alien abduction can't possibly be real. So it was the kooky example that she could use uh, to compare the, the kooky stories of satanic ritual activity against. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that if you're going to honestly make that argument, there are pieces of the abduction experience that you need to rectify with. You need to come up with an explanation for it. How are these the same when they operate so wildly different? Yeah. Yeah. Hence hence why I kind of put that question in there because uh yeah, this is uh this is a this is a stark and significant difference. Well, and thank you for giving me a chance to scream about aliens so I can forget about the horrifying emotional trauma. <laughs> well, does it comfort you to know we only have two and a half pages left? Um it does, except for here's the thing is like usually after we finish the book, I'm excited. I'm like, I'm going to purge this book from my brain. It's going to go on the shelf. I'm not going to think about it. And I don't believe I have the option with this one because no, parts I, of it are burned into my fucking psyche forever. Yeah, pretty sure this one's just going to linger. The one guy screaming, I didn't do it while he was gunned down in his driveway. Yep, that's the one that haunts me. I mean, that one that one haunts me. Uh, the story of what was his name? Uh, yeah, Paul Ingram, which I don't believe we're, we're going to have a chance to get to. Uh, a couple of uh, he's been reduced to a couple of paragraphs, um, but he's but, uh, he yeah. he was Paul. someone who even this one fucked with me because he straight up got so convinced because he didn't believe his children could be liars that he began adding to the narrative himself. He began remembering abuse that he absolutely didn't do, including, again, mass murdering baby satanic cult leader. Yeah, like that. That's what he believed he had. He was in secret, but he was not aware of it because he was in denial. And I'm sorry, but leading one life in this world is difficult enough. I don't know how people leading two lives could do it, let alone where one of them is a secret satanic overlord. Yeah, I, that I struggle with. I don't know. It's like I feel like in order to believe that somebody that you know is secretly unaware that they're leading this double life as a satanic baby eater um shows your lack of um uh uh i don't know trust or lack of um i like it, it's like I, I mean i guess it's true that 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 there are some scenarios where that that people living multiple lives have existed but like this is somebody adamantly saying that they didn't do this thing and all evidence is pointing to that to to them not having done this thing, and yet you're saying sorry, you di you do the thing, you're just in denial and don't know it. Right. Well, yeah. and and also there's a big difference between someone who has two families, say they go on business a lot, and that's really when they're spending time with their other family. Yeah. You know, they're having two lives, and there's a big difference between that and I was the leader of a grand coven of forty Satanists, yeah. all of us leading double lives together, and we have massacred 
dozens of infants yeah. it, it, to our Dark Lord Satan, and those infants have never been reported missing. No bodies have been found. No corroborating evidence exists. Yep. It, th- these are completely different things. Yeah. If you just think about it for longer than three seconds. I yeah. would like to remind everyone that uh, in the late 80s, the FBI launched a massive multi-year investigation into the phenomenon of satanic ritual abuse. And the FBI, who lies for breakfast, said, actually, no. What the fuck? What are any of you talking about? Apparently, in the notes of the actual report issued, the compiler noted Judas Priest Priest is awesome. I don't know what everyone's freaking out about. (laughs) Uh, uh. All right, let's move on. Yeah, let's 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 get through this last section. Home stretch, y'all. In chapter 11, we find Lauftus reaching across the aisle and having an actual conversation with Ellen Bass, co-author of Courage to Heal. Meeting at a hotel where Ellen was giving a talk, the women managed to not shoot on sight and have an actual discussion like adults. Lauftus said, for the seventh million time at least, that while she was sympathetic to those with recovered memories, she was also, you know, a scientist. She needed proof of recovered memories. Ellen tried to offer some, repeating a story of a friend who, while making love, recovered a 20-year-old memory of being molested by her grandfather. Ellen, like many repression advocates, was focused on the woman's grief, on her shame and her rage. She stressed to Lauftus how much anguish the friend's self-doubt had caused her. Was that doubt, that pain, really less important than proof? Lauftus cited the retractors, those who recovered memories and later doubled back, realizing the images were false. Ellen, it seems, had never even encountered a retractor. The survivors she worked with had stood firm in their recollections. Lauftus countered that the falsely accused family members she'd been helping were sticking to their stories too, and then asked Ellen how much their pain mattered, since that seemed to be everybody's chief concern. The bottom line was this. Ellen Bass did not believe that a therapist could convince anybody that they were abused when they hadn't been. Quote, It's just not possible to implant in someone's mind a complete memory with details and relevant emotions for a traumatic event that didn't happen. Loftus begged to differ, citing her shopping mall experiment, which had gone forward and had produced positive results. Ellen made the reasonable argument that those two traumas were not that comparable— Lauftus made the equally reasonable argument that the mechanism of implantation was shown to be there. Moving on, Ellen asked if still calling it repression was even necessary. Can't we just call them memories? Memories that we forgot until we were in therapy? But repression is not normal forgetting, Lauftus told her, nor is repression motivated forgetting, in which we consciously choose to push away feelings, thoughts, and memories that we cannot face but never actually forgetting the presence or their contents. Amnesia? Ellen tried, but Lauftus shot that down quite neatly. Anterograde amnesia refers to a reduced ability to remember events that occurred after a brain injury. Retrograde amnesia is the reduced ability to remember events from before the injury. Psychogenic amnesia is frequently compared to proposed models of repression. An extremely distressing or traumatic event disrupts the biological process of memory formation or memory recall. Another type of amnesia may remove the physical trauma from the victim's memory, but allow the greater context to remain. Amnesia is also frequently self-reversing. Instead of intensive therapy, simple reminders of the lost time may let the pieces fall into place. 
In all of these cases, one thing stands out as starkly opposed to repression models. The victim knows something is missing. But repression does not work like that, according to its advocates. No, in true repression, entire chains of events, habitual sexual abuse or slavery to a cult, for example, have been neatly excised and stored away so seamlessly that the victims lose not just the trauma, but the knowledge that the memories were lost. CSA memory recovers have repeatedly said in this book alone that they, quote unquote, believed they had a happy childhood until the memories returned. And that, that is not something Lauftus believes is possible. Chapter 12 looms large and in it, yet another heartbreak. Paul Ingram was like many men in this book, an ordinary man with an ordinary life, albeit one that centered around a church that verged on cultish now and then. But when his daughters began uncovering memories of him sexually abusing them, things slowly grew sinister. Paul's church, the Church of the Living Water, believed in a literal devil, a thinking, breathing creature who crept into the hearts of Christians and created secret dark sides within them. Much as repression advocates insist that perpetrators also repress their memories, Living Water taught their congregants that their sins were buried, hidden away in their unconscious minds, meaning that when Paul was told he had raped his children, he was already primed to believe it. Over the course of five months, police detectives, a psychologist, and a minister of Paul's church performed repeated and intense interrogations. The police knowingly and repeatedly exploited Paul's fervent religious beliefs, invoking the names of God and Jesus and the devil as they pressured him to confess. Between his emerging stories and his daughter's increasingly bizarre reports, Paul was eventually charged not only with rape and sexual abuse, but with satanic ritual abuse as well. His daughters were accusing him of serious crimes. Murder, mutilation, forced abortions, desecration of corpses, torture of children and animals. But of course, not one trace of physical evidence was found on the girls' bodies. Paul eventually recanted. By the time he had his day in court, he'd started to come out of the traumatized fugue that the police department's torture, because I don't care that they never hit him, this shit was torture, and was now reasserting his innocence. The judge did not believe him. Despite no physical evidence, despite the madness of his daughter's claims, despite the shadiness of the interrogations that obtained Paul's confessions, he was sent to prison for crimes that not only did he not commit, but for crimes that, in my humble opinion, simply did not happen. We come now to the final chapter, 13, wonderfully titled A Question of Heaven or Hell. Psychotherapists James Hillman and Stan Passy, in their book, We've Had a Hundred Years of Psychotherapy and the World's Only Getting Worse, argue that mankind unconsciously seeks hell. Perhaps it's easier on all of us to pretend that we're Cinderella, shivering in a dark basement, and when the door finally flies open, all the shadows and scars will be driven back. That our lives are some scripted, cosmically ordered drama that we can and will escape from. Lauftus wonders, a tad hopelessly, if we're trying to reclaim something that never existed. If maybe, just maybe, we're forgetting the difference between story truth and happening truth. In her own words, quote, The problem is that therapists, being human beings themselves, 
bring into the therapeutic environment their assumptions, biases, and expectations. Suggestion is insidious. Neither therapist nor patient knows that it is working its magic beneath the cover of authentic therapy, end quote. What's more, our fixation with finding the memories, the perpetrator, the devil, the source of our pain may, in fact, be blinding us to real solutions, blocking our path to real progress. To draw from a source outside this book, there is a parable in Buddhist thought, a parable about suffering that I find especially apt here. A man is out in his field when he is struck with a poisoned arrow. Alarmed, his village carries him to the healer, who attempts to remove the arrow. The man, however, stops him and begins to ask questions. Of what wood is the arrow made? What are the colors of the feathers that grace its shaft? From what plant was the poison derived? From what sort of bow was the arrow fired? The poison spreads, and the healer finally rips the arrow free, pronouncing that learning about it will never solve the problem, merely distract from it. Perhaps we have grown fixated on the arrows in our backs, hell-bent on finding and killing the archers, even as the poison rots us away. And that brings us to our final discussion question. Has reading this infuriating book changed your stance or opinion on the repressed memory question in other areas of study? And is hypnosis and memory retrieval something we still have confidence in? So I think, yeah, I, I think in a way it did change my, um, my stance or opinion on the repressed memory question in the sense of the question to me is far more up in the air than I may have thought before. You know, I thought before, for sure, repressed memories exist. That's totally a thing because I was, uh, like, I've had memories that I long forgot about and then have been brought back to the surface, you know, either from somebody saying something or uh, reminding me of it, wh whatever. Um, but I think the ultimate, the answer or, like, the, what we know is we don't know enough about how memory really works. Um, and and it's and it can be dangerous to play around with it like like we've seen with satanic ritual abuse and this with the uh with the with the child sexual abuse stuff like it's incredibly dangerous to to play around with memory um and i think even like i get the point of wanting to to test it out but I think even the mall thing was dangerous. Yeah. And I don't like it. Yeah. It, it, I don't think that that was a good idea. Uh, I get the, the want to do it, but I don't think that even that kind of stuff is, is a good idea. Well, then how do, we, how do we test this? I don't know. Um, but I think gaslighting people isn't the answer, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I did have a similar thought. I was like, this is, this is just scientifically... Uh, organized gaslighting. The, yeah, the, the ethics board almost didn't let her do it. Yeah, she actually, in order to be able to do it, she had to have protocols in place for how she how she intended to soothe the subjects of the experiment when they found out about the deception, because some of them did take it quite badly. I would have. Yeah, I I guarantee you, I would have been pissed. Yeah, yeah, me too. Like, because you just gaslit me to think something happened to me traumatic yeah small traumatic or not 
uh, you still gaslit me and I, I'll never be okay with that, and, you know? And that's, com- that's completely valid. That's the double-edged sword of science and that's part of why the ethics board wrote her so hard before they let her do this. Yeah, and, and like, like I said, I get the need to want to test it and I don't have an answer for how to do it, but it kind of draws back to what I was saying earlier. It's like just because we can... Uh, just because this path might lead to an answer, uh, if it's harmful to other people, maybe we maybe we sh- just shouldn't, and we should continue to try and find another way to to do this, to continue to push the to push the or uh, uh, answer the question. Um, and then for the second part of your question, if uh, is hypnosis and memory memory retrieval something that we still have confidence in? Uh, and I think I do. Um. And I think the reasoning is because, and I think I have confidence in it as so long as it's done ethically, right? And more like how John Mack did it versus how the satanic ritual abuse and CSA people did it. Uh, that's not okay. Uh, if it's something where they just want to be guided through this so that they can tap into that memory, I think that's okay. I think that there are ways to do that so long as we're not implanting and 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 leading them into the answer you know i think but i no matter what i i think that it is sticky and i think that the evidence drawn from it is sticky regardless of of it being done in a way that i would agree with or not i think that ultimately because there is so much unknown here that it's kind of like what we say about using a medium in a ghost in a paranormal investigation, we're essentially trying to answer the phenomenon with the phenomenon, and yeah. we're trying to answer a question of of something unknown with something we don't know enough about. That's yeah. I and, hadn't even thought about it like that. That's a really good point. And and so I think that 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 stuff should be used and talked about with that in mind. You know, in my opinion, of course. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think for me, my answer to the question is um, one of the big takeaways I got from the book was that I had a very wrong impression of what repression is. Yeah. And it's because like even before I got into UFOs, before I read anything about the satanic panic, I learned of repression through fiction. Yeah. And that where it's a very common trope, you know, repressed memories coming back. Oh, the main character forgot they were really the main villain the whole time and, and things like that. And so. I kind of always assumed, yeah, there's probably something to it. Um, But that said, my conception of it was more the line of, I guess, uh, actively forgotten memories, things you don't think about, things you push off so far that you you do forget about them, but they're not gone. Yeah. You will remember them if you need to. Uh, Yeah. And I mean, I've even experienced that. There are aspects of, uh, for example, my past, the, the car accident especially, that there are images that when they pop in my head, I shove them away instinctively. And that's something I'm, I'm working on. But like, for example, uh, so I was in the backseat of the car when the minivan started to flip. I was in the backseat of the van when it started to flip. And I was dozing right up until the moment when we started to tilt. And so I opened my eyes from sleep to seeing the world spinning around me. And that image, just that spinning around me, watching the road sign get flattened by our, our the van we were in as we rolled over it, those are images that among everything that happened to me in the hospital and, and uh, out the accident scene, that image specifically is for some reason triggers something so deep in me. I, I want to push it off. I don't want to deal with it. 
And that was kind of my conception of what repression is. It's people choosing to not deal with these memories so they bury them. Not, <laughs> I am experiencing some form of emotional turmoil, so clearly it is. I am hiding from myself some deep trauma. Right. I, I, I think it really, this gave me a better definition of what repression actually is. Mm -hmm. I will say this. I have more confidence in memory. I do have confidence on memory retrieval and hypnosis because we've seen from the abduction scenario that it, it is it is work. It does work sometimes. Yeah. And people come away from those... Uh, those therapies feeling better about their life, having a firmer grasp on what happened to them. And so if it's done responsibly, if it's done ethically, it's great. Mm -hmm. But we have to acknowledge it is an insanely dangerous tool. Yeah, It's a lot like, hey, uh, getting a knife shoved in your brain will kill you. It's a bad thing. But when a brain surgeon does it, it can help you. Yeah. You, you see what I mean? Like, no, that's, like, no, it's, that's, a, that's a good example. Yeah. Uh, and going, I guess going beyond that, one thing I do want to say, taking a bigger step back, what we have to be cognizant of, obviously, this book got our emotions stirred up. Obviously, this book presented Loftus's points very well. We also have to acknowledge the fact, though, that it's very likely that Loftus did select the the worst of the worst examples to Correct. put in here. Yes. Like, in that nothing is ever this black and white. There are yeah. things... Operate, no, exactly. everything operates in shades of gray. So again, I have to leave room for, I don't know what I don't know. But dealing with this text as it is, it did refine better in my head what repression is, and it makes a damn good argument that repressed memories is not even a thing that can happen. Yeah. Uh, that said, I have to, again, you have to leave room for what you, you don't know what you don't know. So it's possible that maybe our brains can't do that, but maybe something else can do it to us. Right. I have to leave room for that because that her theory does not encapsulate all of the evidence we have reviewed. Right. Yeah. No, and I, 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 I agree with you, and I think that's a very good point that you brought up, that ultimately this is still her presenting her point of view, so likely she, like, like you said, presented the worst of the worst here. You know, so I, I think that's, that's a very valid point. Yep. And thank you for bringing it up. You're welcome. I... Yeah, after after reading this book, because I, I hadn't actually given a lot of thought to repressed memories until we started doing the UFO abduction. Because, again, I, I am a social worker, not a psychologist, but I, as a master's level, I have received a limited amount of psychological training in order to be able to provide some counseling in that. And repressed memories not being a thing by and large at least in the schools i was taught that's that's treated as a given you can't repress memories at least again as lauta said at least the way it's described by the true believers you, by and large it's no longer believed you can do that by most reputable regions of memory science and i am yeah i am definitely standing more in her camp of like the way they're describing it under normal earthly circumstances, no, this this can't this can't happen. Like it, because it, it, right, especially with like the the specific examples of repression is so sufficient, it will convince people who grew up in satanic cults that they had a normal suburban childhood. I agree with Lauftus. That's apparent. That I feel like that's by and large fucking impossible. I don't even know how that could happen. And well, and the whole. You yes, both the victims and the perpetrators repress it. That's, yeah, yeah, that that's where you lose me. Yeah, exactly. That's fucking. When we got to that part of the book, I wanted to pull my hair out of. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because yeah. you're undermining your own point. Because um, then it would have to work in a way you described it not working. 
I, I also have to point out, this is, uh, I'm not going to name names for very obvious reasons. Uh, this individual is no longer on the streets, thankfully. But I, I have met a child abuser. I've met a child rapist. And Same. they were not repressing it. Nope. They they were proud of what they'd done, and they thought Jesus more Christ. people should be doing it. So maybe that is me cherry-picking the one experience I have, but that doesn't line up. They don't seem all that guilty feeling over it. And uh, as for the, the second part of my own question, it, with regards to hypnosis and memory retrieval, I, I too feel like it, it should be treated with, if we do it, it should be treated with a tremendous amount of caution and they should be understand as they should be understood intrinsically as this will probably get a story truth a happening truth is you're going to need a different therapy for happening truth or possibly just accept that you're never going to have the full happening truth but if the story truth is what's going to help you mend then Yes, if if the person is well trained in hypnosis and memory retrieval and no one's getting hauled off to jail because of what comes up in those sessions, I don't I don't have any moral or professional objections to hypnosis being used for experiencers or other varieties of people that have brushed with the phenomenon because as as Jay said as as Nick said, it's the difference between getting stabbed in the brain or going to a neurosurgeon. Like I, after reading this book, I understand much, much more, much, I understand much more fully exactly how carefully hypnosis needs to be handled and exactly how gently someone in a trance state needs to be treated. And I, I feel like that might be where the root of a lot of these really dire problems came from is people who didn't know what they were doing abusing hypnosis. All right. Are you ready for the about the author? I yes. Oh God, yeah, that's me. Um, hold on. All right, so yeah, the about the author. So we're gonna start off with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. 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 Loftus was born October sixteenth, nineteen thirty-three, in Bel Air, California, to father Dr. Sidney Fishman and librarian Rebecca Fishman. She obtained a Bachelor of the Arts in Mathematics and Psychology from the University of California, Los Angeles, in nineteen sixty-six followed by a master's and Ph.D. in mathematical psychology from Stanford University in 1967 and 1970. Dr. Elizabeth, what the fuck is mathematical psychology? I have no idea. In 1968, she married fellow psychologist Jeffrey Loftus, a marriage which lasted until 1991. She began her career as a cognitive psychologist at the New School for Social Research in New York before moving to Washington, where she worked as an assistant professor at the University of Washington until 2001. In 1994, she released this book and that same year received an In Praise of Reason Award from the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, who I do want to note was the group that we discussed in relation to the book Twin Telepathy, who knowingly repressed studies concerning ESP as not to, quote, give the mystics a win. Nobody's the good guy here. <laughs> Which is why I went bleh. <laughs> in 2001, she went to work at the University of California, Irvine. And in 2002, she was ranked number 58 out of the 100 most influential psychological researchers of the 20th century by Review of General Psychology. From 2011 onward, she served on the Executive Council of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Blech. She has won a number of other awards in psychology, such as the Grawemeyer Award from the University of Louisville and the Scientific Freedom and Responsibility Award from the American Association for the Advancement of Science, 
as well as over a dozen other similar awards. She is best known for her work in the criminal justice system and for her Lost in the Shopping Mall experiments. Uh, she's authored one other book, Witness for the Defense, with Catherine Ketchum, and as of the current date, she has provided expert testimony or consultation on over 300 criminal court cases, including the legal defense teams for Ghislaine Maxwell, Harvey Weinstein, and Robert Durst. She has also been involved in the court cases for Ted Bundy, O.J. Simpson, Rodney King, Oliver North, Martha Stewart, Louis Libby, Michael Jackson, the Menendez brothers, and the Oklahoma City bomber, during which she testified about the malleability of memory and the human tendency to falsely recall historical events. Funnily enough, it was her testimony about the malleability of memory that Ted Bundy fixated on during his failed attempt to act as his own defense team. I don't even know what to say to that. Just a a yeah. not fun fact. Yeah. Uh, she, she, and she's worked mostly for the defense on this stuff, right? Yeah, yes, but mostly she was brought in to testify about the malleability of memory, uh, which I'm assuming prosecutors would use to attempt to discredit witnesses. Mm. Yeah. That, interesting. That, so I don't think she was called in to be like, this person's a liar. She was called in to say, yeah. what does your research say about memory? Okay, I'm not going to use that. Yeah. Now, yeah. I'd be curious to see what was used in the Gilliam Maxwell and... and uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein stuff, just because vomit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, they done did those things. Oh, God, yeah. Anyway, uh, Catherine Ketchum. So Catherine grew up in New Jersey and graduated from the University of Rochester, New York, with a degree in psychology in 1971. She's lived and worked around the country, including Boston, New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, San Francisco, Seattle, and Ohio. Catherine is a well-known co-author, with most of her books being co-authored by experts in various fields. In her words, quote, I am the writer, the translator, the privileged sidekick who takes the ideas and experiences of others and puts them into words on the page, hoping to offer help and hope to readers who find their way to our books. She is an avid reader, photographer, gardener, stargazer, golfer, and world traveler, and she has spent hundreds of hours at the Trilogy Recovery Community and the Walla Walla Juvenile Justice Center working with at-risk youths. In 2003, she started a parent support group for people whose children were in juvenile detention. This expanded into a community-based support program for youths and their families called the Trilogy Recovery Community. She authored two books with Loftus. Among her other work includes The Power of Empathy, co-written with Dr. Arthur Kiar Mikoli. I think that's right. Beyond the Influence, Understanding and Defeating Alcoholism with Dr. William D. Asbury, Teens Under the Influence with Dr. Nicholas Pace, Experiencing Spirituality, Finding Meaning Through Storytelling with Ernest Kurtz and over a dozen others. She maintains a consistent blog that frequently focuses on issues of addiction and alcoholism on her KatherineKetchumBooks.com website, and she currently resides in Walla Walla with her husband. And that's what we got. And that's what we got, which brings us to housekeeping? Housekeeping. 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 So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform that you are listening to us on. And if it is Spotify or Apple, please do leave us a review. We finally have enough to show that we are five star worthy since all of our reviews on Spotify have been five stars. We're at like 4.3 or something on Apple, but whatever. Y'all are the best. Yeah, but thank you for all of the awesome five star reviews on on all of the, the platforms. Keep them coming. Uh, and if you want to interact with us, you can do that. Uh, we 
have a Twitter account, Noctivian, at Noctivian Pod. And I am on Twitter at Mix Rory Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a plethora of other uh, social medias. We have a Twitter account, Noctivian underscore podcast. Uh, we do have a Reddit user account, Noctivigant Podcast. And we have a Noctivigant Tumblr blog, Noctivigant Podcast. It's mostly memes. <laughs> and if you want to reach out for whatever reason, if you want to give us a book suggestion, if you want to tell us what we said wrong or praise us for how awesome we are, you can do that. Noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. And I think that's it. Oh, no, I just launched our Discord server. I will put a link to that in the show notes. So if you want to join our Discord, you can do that. And that's where we'll be housing different discussions. If you just want to chat, memes, whatever you want, you can come hang out with us there. The server is called The Midnight Roads. But I think that's it. What's up next? Oh, God, what is it next? Oh, uh, next up, we're going to be reading Grains of Sand by Brian Kano. Yeah. Uh, he is a... Has he is a paranormal investigator with over a twenty five year career, uh, and this book is it's pretty interesting. It is mostly uh, a distillation of what he believes are his most important paranormal experiences and kind of what that taught him along the way. Yeah, it should be interesting and significantly more lighthearted than this book. I'm sorry I did this to us. I'm not. I'm not sorry I read this book. I'm just uh, exhausted, exhausted. I yeah. am deeply exhausted by thinking about this material. And granted that that's probably a good thing, right? That we're, yeah. we're we are uh, engaging with difficult material that challenges us to grow. No, absolutely. That said, growth is scary and painful. Also, yep. tr also very true. But on that note, let's get out of here. Go ahead and lead us out of here, Jay. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there on those midnight roads until next time. Don't get lost. No, seriously, just stay safe this time. Yeah. Sincerely. I don't want to wish danger on anyone right now. Listen, listen, guys, I am a prison abolitionist. I don't think that there are really any circumstances that are best solved by putting a person in a concrete box for the rest of their life. However, I do think that Lynn Gonfeld and Doug Nagel and some of these other people are entitled to uh, hunt certain other people for sport. <laughs>